Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 146th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, 114, 115, 116, 119, 126, 127, 133, 137, and 140. And episode 82, which also featured fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. And now on to the show. I watched all, all but about 15 minutes of the second debate here this morning. Mm-hmm. So, But I think it's probably a good idea to split it up and let's just talk about the first one and I was trying to make sure that there wasn't like another debate next week or something, but it doesn't look like there's there's about a month until the next one, so we can definitely split this up and we'll still be current on the debates here. So, yeah, yeah, I I you know I recognize the need to get these things out in a timely manner to you know respond to events in real time and stuff, but uh, we both have lives, I guess. We both have jobs and stuff, so. Yeah, but yeah, I was I I was looking at that and I I had listened to the first debate one time and I'd taken a few notes, and then I thought, well, I started the second debate a day or two later, and I was like, man, I don't know. I, watching the second debate, I'm getting a little fuzzy on what actually happened in the first debate. I'm like, I really want to do a better job on the first debate, and then come back to the second debate and try to do a good job on that one too. And so I I went back through debate one and I took more detailed notes and everything. So. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, there's 20 candidates, too. I mean, there's just not enough time to talk about everyone in the space of, you know, even even 10 at a time is, is a little bit much. And we'll talk about that, the format, too. But it's just mm. there's a lot to get through. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess to kind of set us up for this episode, I guess we're talking about uh, the night one Democratic debate, the first debate of the 20, 2020 primary. Um took place on June 26, 2019 in Miami. You mean, uh, I, I thought I thought you were going to break into Spanish there. Los, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, oh God. I, I, don't I, even I, do I, it. I, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Um, that's certainly an issue was the Spanish in this debate, which we'll get to, but yeah. Um, I guess just for more for like kind of, you know, uh, setting this up for posterity, I suppose, if anybody comes back and listens to this a year later and they I, I took some notes on who was there, who was positioned where, just so we can kind of get this in our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, the first the first two moderators were Jose Diaz Balart. Uh, no, sorry. The, the first ones were Lester Holt, Savannah Guthrie and Jose Diaz Balart. And then later, about halfway through, they replaced Lester Holt and Savannah Guthrie with Chuck Todd and Rachel Maddow. Mm -hmm. And uh, from left to right, our candidates this time for the the debate. And I think we could call this almost the undercard debate, right? No, actually, I was another thing I was going to get to. This is totally Mm. random. Yeah. 
So but it's I mean, not re- not really well. It's not really undercard because we've got you know uh, we got Elizabeth Warren, uh, yeah. and she's near the top of the polls. But yeah, I mean there is there was I I would say there was probably more of the B team on this first mm-hmm. debate. But yeah, I I thought there was some strong you know strong people yeah, on this no, one. So. I agree. I mean I I do think like yeah Elizabeth Warren is yeah she's one of the top top three or four candidates right now for sure. But I mean, aside from her, I mean, everybody else to me felt B team. Mm. I mean, I know uh, they they set out this time not to do what the Republicans did, where they made the kitty table back in 2016 and they put a whole bunch of candidates there. And, you know, it, it was kind of a diminishing thing of those candidates. But I don't know, by the randomness, I think if they really wanted I thought about this a lot over the past few weeks leading up to the debate, I think if they wanted to. um really guarantee that each night was equally worth watching they should have put like i don't know joe biden uh pete Buttigieg, uh maybe uh kamala harris and maybe cory booker's names in a hat and they should have put bernie sanders and elizabeth warren's names in a hat and they should have chosen like they should have mixed up some combination of the mainstream leaders from the mainstream democratic party and then some of the the leaders of the progressive side of the Democratic Party so that they, you know, mix them up a little bit. And I think that would have the disadvantage that you wouldn't have Warren and Sanders at at the same time on the same night, which could flesh a few things out. But I mean, having having all the big people on the second night and then only having Elizabeth Warren on the first night, it uh, yeah, I don't know. It came across as kind of creating a tiered a two tier debate structure to me Hmm. well i mean yeah i mean they had to do something i guess and you're right the republicans did it with the undercard debate and there was like bobby jindal and (laughs) mike huckabee and and one and then everybody else who actually had a shot in the other but um still tanned and rested bob still tanned and rested (laughs) exactly But uh, anyway, yeah, go, yeah, right. Let's go through who was there in the first night, because yeah, that's, there's a lot. So okay, from from left to right, we had uh, New York City Mayor Bill De Blasio, uh, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, uh, Obama Housing Secretary Julian Castro, uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Klobuchar. Uh, Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, mm, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and former Maryland Congressman John Delaney. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got those are our players for the the first night's festivities. So yeah, and then they put the highest polling in the middle, which is obviously Elizabeth Warren, and kind of moved out from there. So you always have the people on the ends trying to get their uh, two cents in, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, they're they're definitely directed the questions more towards the the middle. I feel like so. Yeah, I was. I mean, one thing to say, I was kind of surprised that Elizabeth Warren was not more vocal or more, you know. I think I've I've seen some people like commenting on this thing or something that um, Elizabeth Warren was one of the top two or three people for words spoken throughout the debate or something. But I, it didn't feel like that. Right. Like mm-hmm. when when the fireworks were going off, when people were fighting back and forth, like Elizabeth Warren just kept her head down and did not get 
did not get involved at all, really. Right. Well, I mean, I think she know, knew that on that stage that she had a pretty comfortable lead as far as, you know, and, and we'll talk about this, but I felt like there was some sniping between Julian Castro and, uh, and Beto and Del Tavazio and Beto. And, you know, there was a lot of people going for Beto, yeah. frankly. But, um, Bo- but Booker yeah. and Beto. Booker and Beto. Yes. Let's let's not forget that. Um but yeah, I felt like there was a lot more like kind of sniping for second place, and I think Elizabeth Warren knew that. I th- maybe maybe if she'd been on the same stage with uh, Bernie, and maybe this will happen later, maybe there'll be a little more uh, daylight between mm-hmm. the two. Uh, I would like to heard her respond to him offering everybody, uh, you know, free college, uh, you know, the, not free college, but the uh, forgiveness of student debt. Because uh, that mm-hmm. seemed like that was a little bit her idea first, maybe. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Well, I've anyway, heard I've heard yeah. somewhere. I think I heard somewhere that Bernie and Bernie's campaign and Warren's campaign have kind of signed a non-aggression pact with each other. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't think they want to go after each other. Like I, I recently learned that um, I think I think Bernie had asked her in 2016 to get in the race, and she kept holding off and holding off and holding off, and finally he jumped in. And uh, the rest is kind of history there, but um. Yeah, it, I, his attitude seems to be if it's not her, then it should be me. And her attitude seems to be if I don't get in, then it could be Hillary or it could be somebody else. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Either either one of them, I'm sure, would be good and probably pretty effective. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, tonight we're talking about effectiveness in the debates. So, yeah, Spanish. I think that was kind of a starting point. There was a lot of Spanish speaking and I don't know, Tim, I mean, I could understand basically every word that they were saying and I knew what they were saying and it still annoyed me. Does it that was very, oh, it was totally annoying. And I, I thought the best reaction to that was when Beto launched into mm-hmm. it and then you looked over at Cory Booker. Cory Booker's the, face is like, it's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> this economy has got to work for everyone. And right now we know that it isn't. And it's going to take all of us coming together to make sure that it does. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. Pero si queremos hacer eso, necesitamos incluir cada persona en nuestra democracia. Uh, cada, votar, ca- cada votante necesitamos la representación y cada voz necesitamos escuchar. Well, that was that was a really funny moment, and I made a note of it because, yeah, Beto just launches into Spanish right there, and I was like, oh, God, oh, God, are we doing this? Is this yes. the kind of pandering we're doing? And I saw Booker's face in the background, and his eyes bugged out, and I was like, okay, Booker feels the same way I do. But then, but then later in the debate, there was a question to Booker, and he launched into Spanish, and I was like, oh, okay. La situación ahora es inaceptable. SB Presidente ha atacado, ha demonizado los inmigrantes. Es inaceptable. Voy a cambiar este. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't like looking at how ridiculous O'Rourke was looking. He was thinking, oh man, you know, O'Rourke is stealing my same great idea that I had. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so that, that was his problem with it, apparently. So, yeah, the, the battles of the Spanish. I think uh, Julian Castro spoke some Spanish, which, you know, me llamo Julian Castro y estoy postulando por presidente de los Estados Unidos. The very fact that I can say that tonight shows the progress that we have made in this country. That's, you know, he's he's from a Hispanic background. His grandmother's Mexican. 
I mean, she came from Mexico and he's an Mexican American and that's maybe a little more justified, but I don't know. It just comes across as super like, remember uh, like in 2016, 2015 or something like Hillary Clinton had the thing about, they were trying to make this thing happen where it was like, Hillary Clinton is just like your Tia. She's yeah. like your abuela or something, right? Yeah. She's like your auntie or your, your yeah. grandma in Spanish. And then you had this thing, ha- hashtag on Twitter, like not my Tia, not my abuela yeah. or whatever it was. And it's just like, I feel like, yeah, don't. I've heard that described as hispandering. <laughs> okay. That's a pretty good word for it. But there was, there was some of that tonight for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, they were in Miami, I guess they maybe felt like they had to do that, but yeah, I don't know who is like actually a Spanish speaking person and heard Beto's clunky Spanish and was like, yes, <laughs> my guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not a great look and I don't know, man. I just, I mean, I, I don't know if Spanish speaking audiences or Hispanic American audiences or Latin or Lat Latin X or whatever we're calling it nowadays, I don't know if they enjoy this kind of pandering, if they feel like, okay, these people are reaching out to me by saying this, or I have to imagine that some portion of the population is just as annoyed by it as we are. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, you know, racism is rampant in America these days. You got a whole bunch of people in America who can't stand brown people. And I just don't know how speaking Spanish on stage plays out in the Midwest where you know, you may need to win some of these disaffected Trump voters or something, but then they, they, you know, hear you speak in a language that they don't understand on TV. I don't know how it works, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like you've probably, when, when the current administration is locking children in cages and concentration camps, I'm pretty sure you've got the Hispanic vote, you know, like, I don't know how much <laughs> more pandering you need to do to that population. I mean, yes, you need to shore up every vote you can, but yeah, I don't know if that's like, really what we should be like focusing on exactly yeah but. well surprisingly i mean surprise i think trump got a surprisingly large percentage of the hispanic vote in 2016 mm. which was very surprising i'm extremely curious what's going to happen in 2020 with them if they're gonna i can't imagine they're going to continue to support him in the numbers they did in 2016 so mm-hmm. but we will see yes um yeah oh so the spanish yeah um let's see um yeah well i let's see i i don't know i kind of went through things uh kind of issue by issue because that was actually kind of i and and by writing these things down you kind of figure out what their what their methodology is as the uh, debate moderators i guess and i think one of the first things was like breaking up big corporations and de blasio and warren said yes Senator Booker, there is a debate in this party right now about the role of corporations, as you know. Senator Warren, in particular, put out a plan to break up tech companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google. You've said we should not, quote, be running around pointing at companies and breaking them up without any kind of process. Why do you disagree? I don't think I disagree. I think we have a serious problem in our country with corporate consolidation. And you see the evidence of that in how dignity is being stripped from labor. And we have people that work full-time jobs and still can't uh, make a living wage. We see that because consumer prices are being raised by pharmaceutical companies that often have monopolistic holds on drugs. And you see that by just the fact that this is actually an economy that's hurting small businesses and not allowing them to compete. 
uh, one of the most aggressive bills in the Senate to deal with corporate consolidation is mine about corporate consolidation in the ag sector. So I feel very strongly about the need to check the corporate consolidation and let the free market work. And I'll tell you this, I live in a low-income black and brown community. I see every single day that this economy is not working for average Americans. The indicators that are being used from GDP to Wall Street's rankings is not helping people in my community. It is about time that we have an economy that works for everybody, not just the wealthiest in our nation. But quickly, Senator Booker, you did say that you didn't think it was right to name names, to name companies and single them out, as Senator Warren has briefly. Why is that? Well, again, I, I will single out companies like Halliburton or Amazon that pay nothing in taxes and are need to change that. And when it comes to antitrust law, what I will do is, number one, appoint judges that will enforce it. Number two, have a DOJ and a federal trade commission that will go through the processes necessary to check this kind of corporate concentration. At the end of the day, we have too much of a problem with corporate power growing. We see that with everything from Citizens United and the way they're trying to influence Washington. It's about time that we have a president that fights for the people in this country that's time, who sir. need to have someone that's a champion for them. Thank you, Senator. Senator Warren, I mentioned you. Are you picking winners and losers? So the way I understand this is there is way too much consolidation now in giant industries in this country. That hurts workers, it hurts small businesses, it hurts independent farmers, it hurts our economy overall, and it helps constrict real innovation and growth in this economy. Now look, we've had the laws out there for a long time to be able to fight back. What's been missing is courage. Courage in Washington to take on the giants. That's part of the corruption in this system. It has been far too long that the monopolies have been making the campaign contributions, have been funding the super PACs, have been out there making sure that their influence is heard and felt in every single decision that gets made in Washington. Where I want to start this is I want to return government to the people, and that means calling out the names of the monopolists and saying, I have the courage to go after them. Thank you. Delaney was, uh, I don't, okay, kind of an aside. I think, you know, there were, there were three kinds of candidates we saw tonight. There were like good candidates. There were, you know, candidates who were not good, not very impressive, but kind of, you know, there. And then there are candidates that you're just scratching your head. Like, what is this person doing on this stage? <laughs> Who's supporting them? How did they... How did they get the donations? How did they get the signatures and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. To get on the stage. And yeah, John Delaney was my number. He is candidate numero uno in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. Who is his constituency exactly? Yeah. Who's like in the streets cheering for him to be president? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bob, if, if, if they knock him out of the primary, the people are going to rise up in the streets. There's going to be blood. <laughs> Democracy is going to fall apart. <laughs> it's going to be chaos if John Delaney doesn't get this. <laughs> yeah. Oh so, so anyways, yeah, talking about breaking up big tech companies and stuff like that, de Blasio and Warren were for it. John Delaney avoided the question, and then he said, well, I started two businesses, and I, you know, did this and this and this and this and this, and I, like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Booker said no. Um Inslee was confusing. He talked about unions and clean jobs, which I don't know what that has to do with Facebook or Twitter, <laughs> Google. Uh, anyways, those were the notable 
positions, I guess, on breaking up big, big tech or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about that? That's a that's an interesting and weird issue. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's almost kind of Trumpian in that way. And I'm saying, you know, you, this is also something you see from Putin. You know, he gets involved in private business this way. You know, I think there's mm-hmm. something to be said. You know, uh, Andrew Yang. I know he was in the second night, but he's before talked about. Uh, or maybe it wasn't him, but it's maybe some other tech person, but like, oil, you know, this is the oil of the 21st century. You know, maybe, maybe it was Elizabeth Warren that said that. I can't remember. But anyway, I like, don't think she did. No, no. But anyway, like that's what we did with standard oil. It got too big. We broke it up. Uh, but maybe, you know, maybe she did. I'm trying yeah. to, I'm, honestly, it's slipping away from me. I, yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. I'm getting old, but, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, it's like, yeah, this is like, this is the oil of the 21st century. This is the, and these, these companies have all this data and they have all this control of our lives and maybe they do need to be broken up at the same time. That is a little bit like, you know, dictatorial authoritarian to break up private business like that and decide, who's, you know, not, you know, who who should be allowed to continue to do business. So I don't know. I'm conflicted about it, yeah. to be honest. I'm not entirely sure how I feel. Like, yeah, my, my instinct is to say, yeah, break them up, of course. Well, I, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky issue, and I've heard a lot of people supporting it and stuff. And I, I think I understand the impulse to want to punish some of these companies. Um, and it's not just about punishment, of course, but, you know, about having I, – I don't know. I think that – I think, you know, to some degree – YouTube, I don't know, Google over YouTube, I suppose, and Twitter certainly, and probably Facebook to some degree as well, are not taking seriously the d- dangerous and damaging effect that they're having on de- American democracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, the, the the pipeline to extremist content on YouTube is very well documented. Um, Twitter... You know, we've got we've got a two tier system, just like most other things in society these days where normal people get in trouble for things. Donald Trump gets a million retweets. Right. It's like Mm -hmm. and now today they say they're going to institute something where if Donald Trump breaks the rules, then they're going to mention that he broke the rules in the post, but they're not going to edit him. Mm. They're not going to affect his account in any way. It's, you know, in in society, legally, um, culturally. You know, free speech wise, uh, human rights, like it's a two tier system, you know, some people are above the law mm-hmm. and some people are above the the online law, the, the rules and service, the terms and conditions of having an account on these companies. And, you know, some company a few weeks ago said, well, we can't we can't really crack down on hate speech or something because there's too much overlap with certain Republican politicians. It's like. Just do your job, and if you have to ban Republican politicians, then maybe at some point they'll have to change the way they talk. <laughs> but um, yeah. so I, I I understand. Like to get back to the point, I understand the impulse to break these things up a little bit. But at the same time, like we're looking at that from right now. Like let's okay, we get a Democrat and we'll break them up. They won't be as strong. They won't be as powerful, and they'll have to follow the government's rules. Well, you know, maybe that works for a while while the Democrats are in power. But what about the next time we have a Trump come into power? Mm. Having the government have control over Facebook and Twitter and Google. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. Republicans have always been complaining. Oh, it's not fair. They're biased against us. Oh, they're censoring our voices. What about our free speech on these private platforms? 
can you imagine if they run power? They're going to start. Can you I, just imagine what they're going to do if the if the government has its hooks into these private companies more than they do, mm-hmm. and you have a, a, an authoritarian esque regime mm-hmm. on the other side? For sure. So I think that's like that's something. I may be right or I may be wrong, but I just like to hear people who support breaking up the big tech stuff really grapple with some of that stuff. Like, I mean, what what happens? What happens mm-hmm. if the government can control these things? If they've been, you know. <laughs> put under some sort of government control to some de- to any degree mm-hmm. and we have an unfriendly administration right yeah it's, so, it's, it's, it, i'm conflicted about it i don't have the answers yet i'm i if i was running for president right now my page on my website would be blank for that so i'm not entirely yeah. sure what i think so yeah but i i do think something needs to be done to impress upon you know zuckerberg and who's the twitter guy jack dorsey or whoever mm-hmm. you know you you're not going to be able to get away with not knowing what was going on like you did in 2016 where you know i don't know there has to be some accountability there so anyways okay our next issue was healthcare mm-hmm. um let's see uh let's see abolish the question would you abolish private health insurance for government run uh I think Warren and de Blasio said yes. Uh, let's see. Klobuchar said drug companies raising prices, all this kind of stuff. She says it's all foam and no beer, something where we, where I come from. Oh, God. Senator Klobuchar, let me put the question to you. You're one of the Democrats who wants to keep private insurance in addition to a government uh, health care plan. Why is an incremental approach, in your view, better than... A sweeping overall. Well, I think it's a bold approach. It's something that Barack Obama wanted to do when we um, were working on the Affordable Care Act, and that is a public option. I am just simply concerned about kicking uh, half of America off of their health insurance in four years, which is exactly what this bill says. So let me go on beyond that. There is a much bigger issue in addition to that, and that is pharmaceuticals. The president literally went on TV, on Fox, and said that people's heads would spin when they see how much he would bring down pharmaceutical prices. Instead, 2,500 drugs have gone up in double digits since he came into office. Instead, he gave $100 billion in giveaways to the pharma companies. For the rest of us, for the rest of America, that's what we call at home, all foam and no beer. We got nothing out of it. And so my proposal is to do something about pharma, to take them on, to allow negotiation under Medicare, to bring in less expensive drugs from other countries. And pharma thinks they own Washington. Well, they don't your, own me. Your time is up. Uh, pharma thinks they own Washington. Well, they don't own me. Okay. Uh, Warren signed on to Bernie's Medicare for All plan. Senator. Senator Warren, you signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. It would put essentially everybody on Medicare and then eliminate private plans that offer similar coverage. Is that the plan or path that you would pursue as president? So, yes, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for All, and let me tell you why. I've spent a big chunk of my life studying why families go broke. And one of the number one reasons is the cost of health care, medical bills. And that's not just for people who don't have insurance. It's for people who have insurance. 
Look at the business model of an insurance company. It's to bring in as many dollars as they can in premiums and to pay out as few dollars as possible for your health care. That leaves families with rising premiums, rising co-pays, and fighting with insurance companies to try to get the health care that their doctors say that they and their children need. Medicare for All solves that problem. And I understand. There are a lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible, we just can't do it, it's have a lot of political reasons for this. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. Well, health care is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. Um, O'Rourke, optional Medicare for all. Hmm. Congressman. Congressman O'Rourke, when you ran for Senate, you also praised a bill that would replace private insurance. This year, you're saying you're no longer sure. Can you explain why? My goal is to ensure that every American is well enough to live to their full potential because they have health care. In Laredo, Texas, I met a young man, 27 years old, told me that he'd been to a doctor once in his life. And on that visit, he was told he had diabetes, he was told he had glaucoma, and he was told untreated because he doesn't have health care, he'll be dead before the age of 40. So getting to guaranteed, high quality, universal health care as quickly and surely as possible has to be our goal. The ability to afford your prescriptions and go to a primary care provider, the ability to see a mental health care provider in Texas, the single largest provider of mental health care services is the county jail system today. And health care also has to mean that every woman can make her own decisions about her own body and has access to the care that makes that possible. Our plan says that if you're uninsured, we enroll you in Medicare. If you're insufficiently insured, you can't afford your premiums, we enroll you in Medicare. But if you're a member of a union that negotiated for a health care plan that you like because it works for your you and up. your family, you're able to keep it. We preserve choice by making sure that everybody has health time is up, Congressman, but I do want to ask a follow-up on this one. Just to, be, just to be very clear, I'll give you 10 seconds. Would you replace private insurance? No, I, I think that choice is, is fundamental hey, to wait, wait. our ability to get everybody yeah, care for. Private insurance is not working for tens of millions of Americans. When you talk about the co-pays, the deductibles, the premiums, the out-of-pocket expenses, it's not working. <coughs> that's How right. can you so, defend so for a those system that's not, not working. working, they can choose Medicare. For the culinary workers in you Nevada who I listen to, who negotiated for those plans, for people. Uh, they're able to keep them. Why are you defending Americans private insurance? Say they like their private health insurance, by the way. It should be noted that 100 million Americans I mean, I think we should be the party that keeps what's working and fixes what's broken. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, we should give everyone in this country health care as a basic human right for free. Full stop. But we should also give them the option to buy private insurance. Why do we have to stand for taking away something from people? And also, it's bad policy. If you go to every hospital in this country, and you ask them one question, which is how would it have been for you last year if every one of your bills were paid at the Medicare rate? Every single hospital administrator said they would close. And the Medicare for All bill requires payments to stay at current Medicare rates. So to some extent, we're basically supporting a bill that will have every hospital close. I mean, my dad was a union electrician. Right, I actually grew up in a working class family. He loved the health care that the IBEW gave him. And I just always think about my dad and anything I would do from a policy perspective. He'd look at me and he'd, and he'd say, good job, John, for getting health care for every American. I've, I've let, I've let but this why are you taking my health care 
I don't, you know, this is the thing. I don't know that it works. I think, you know, on Medicare for all, you kind of have to be an extremist, I think, right? I mean, if you let people choose if they want to get on it or not, or pay into it or not, then funding is impossible. And you just have people not being on it until they get sick and their private insurance isn't going to cover something or they can't afford the co-pays or they can't afford the premiums or whatever. And then they're going to try to jump on it when it's when they need it. And it's just not going to work. Right. I think you have to I don't think you can have uh, an optional, you know, Medicare for all where people don't. I don't know. I think the optional part should be the private insurance. Like, I think it should just be a given that everyone has Medicare. And then if you want more, I mean, even like, you know, not to jump ahead to the second debate, but Buttigieg, Buttigieg did mention this, that even in countries like England that have, you know, the NHS and Canada and stuff, people still have some kind of, you know, also private insurance on top of that, because there are things beyond the basic stuff that you might want you know, cosmetic surgery or, you know, if there's some extreme experimental stuff you want to try, you know, there's, there, there's all these other things that you can't get off just the basic, but you know, I just think you have to have the given the default setting be that everyone signed up for Medicare and then regardless, and then if you want more, sure, you can do that on top of it, but you know what I mean? Like that, that can't be the <laughs> optional part. I think, yeah, I mean, Korea is the same way. I mean, there is the national insurance that covers like four different sections, I think. And uh, but a lot of Korean citizens do have uh, extra kind of supplementary private insurance as well. And I don't know if that's for I don't think that that would be for like cosmetic stuff necessarily. But I, you know, try to get any insurance company to pay for cosmetic surgery. But uh, (laughs) but but I, I do have concerns about that, too, because that really. It, it looks like it's something where it's just too easy to uh, create a two-tier system, you know, mm-hmm. where the, you know, it's it's kind of like, I mean, everybody in America can get basic uh, television, right? You can get the network channels, but, you know, rich people can buy cable and enjoy actual quality content, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it's, it's like everybody can get the basic health care, but if you really want to take care of yourself and not get yourself in a sticky situation, then you kind of have to have to go private, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, but I mean, I'm open to it as a thing. I think everybody has to be in the, in the, the Medicare for all, but yeah, I think there's more, more citations needed on allowing private insurance to continue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think like somebody said, I think, you know, everybody likes their private insurance until they actually have to use it. And a lot of these people out there are saying, oh, I love my private insurance. It's really good. I just want to keep it. I'm very happy with it. They most of those people, by definition, have not had a major major medical emergency that they had to fall back on their private insurance for. Mm-hmm. I would hazard to guess. So, yeah. And then there's the high deductibles and there's, you know, just because you have insurance doesn't mean that it's going to be covered when it's time to use it. They'll, they can deny you, too. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, it may work out great now. But like if you ever had something really wrong, good luck. Maybe they'll say yes. Maybe they won't, you know. Yeah, I, I think the other reason I think about this, like not having the private optional insurance after that, which, you know, is admittedly perhaps an extreme position is, you know, every so often we have this thing where we have to say, well, you know, Congress and the Senate, they shouldn't be keeping people's wages down and not raising the minimum wage when they're getting this much and they always give themselves raises or, you know, congressmen and senators and stuff. They they think that, you know, private insurance is good enough for everybody, but they have 
you know, government provided health insurance, this premium as a, as a consequence of their job. Right. And I think if you do put everybody on the same plan, including congressmen and senators, and they don't get any, they don't have the option for any kind of a special treatment thing, then you're going to see people really actually making it work. You know, everybody has an impetus to make it work. So I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a hot issue. So, but I, uh, yeah, let's see. What else did they say? Okay. Uh, O'Rourke, I will say while O'Rourke did bring up optional medical Medicare for all and then optional private insurance, he did bring up one point that I don't really think is easily dismissed, which is that some unions have negotiated health care in lieu of wages increases and stuff at their jobs. Mm. And so if you get rid of all health care, they can't go back to these negotiations that may have taken place, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago and go back for those wages and stuff that they that they should receive in lieu of the you know the health care now. That's that's a that's a hard question, right? And somebody's got to deal with that somehow. Mm-hmm. So um Let's see. De Blasio says private system isn't working. I will say I think Bill de Blasio, he's, he's kind of a national headline, like kind of a national joke or something. I don't fully understand it. I haven't followed everything he's done up in New York City or whatever, but uh, I think he performed a little bit better than maybe a lot of people expected last night. Or two or nights somebody ago. on the edge of the, you know, the, the sides there and, and low in the polls. I think he probably acquitted himself pretty well. Uh, you know, you always have to jump in when you're on the edge to make yourself known. And obviously he was able to do break through a little bit on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what people get yeah, because people do seem to be dismissive of him. And I I don't live in New York City, so I couldn't really say if he's done a good job or a bad job as mayor. I know that people mm-hmm. in the city are always mad about the subway is not working. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily his fault alone. Maybe that's the governor's fault, Cuomo. I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah, it's like New York City. You've got basically the oldest subway system in the world, as far as I know, right? Right. I think it's. I don't know. Old London may be older, but it's like, I don't know. You know, maybe yeah. that's part of the issue, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, John Delaney said Medicare for all plus private insurance. Um, he says I've talked to some healthcare providers, and they say hospitals would close at Medicare rates. Hmm. I don't know. That's an interesting question. He said if everybody came in and just paid the Medicare rates, then hospitals couldn't stay open, which I don't know. You know, I, I don't have those facts and figures in front of me. I say it would be interesting to have like, you know, some journalists do some investigative reporting and exactly, you know, if you expand. Well, my time is up <laughs> to uh, to quote Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> I'm out of time. I can't continue. No, (laughs) I don't know where I'm going with this train of thought. I'm just saying somebody, somebody should look into it. Right. Yeah. I I like how he only remembered it. It was time was up when he like didn't have a point to make or something like, or he lost his train of thought. Like when he had something he wanted to shout over everyone else, he didn't care what time he had left. (laughs) Yeah, that was, again, that's the, I guess we're getting into the second night here, but I, oh boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that very soon, I'm sure. But uh, I think we have to say that, yeah, uh, that uh, uh, what's her name? Which her? Uh, the busing, busing situation. Oh, uh, uh, Kamala Harris. Ka- Kamala Harris. Yeah. Yeah. She she bodied Joe Biden. That was yep. he's he's. Yeah, that was. 
I, I think he's going to drop like a rock pretty soon after this. I, I don't yeah. know that he can hold on to front runner status after that situation, but that's, that's another topic for another yep. day, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't ask Trump about busing because he just thinks the wheels on the bus go round and round. So. Yeah, honk the horn, honk the horn. <laughs> just wanted to follow up quickly on the question about busing. Do you see it as a viable way of integrating schools? Does that relate to the policy that you're? Well, going it has to been unveil? something that they've done for a long period of time. I mean, you know, there there aren't that many ways you're going to get people to schools. So this is something that's been done. In some cases, it's been done with a hammer instead of a velvet glove, and, you know, that's part of it. But this has been certainly a thing that's been used over the... I think if if uh, Vice President Biden had answered the question somewhat differently, it would have been a lot... It would have been a different result, because they really did uh, hit him hard on that one. So, uh, but it is certainly a, a primary method of getting people to schools. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah. back to the debate. <laughs> okay, um... Let's see. Booker says Medicare for all immediately. Senator Booker, explain to me where you are. This is hugely important to people, so tell us where you are. I absolutely will. First of all, we're talking about this as a health care issue, but in communities like mine, low-income communities, this is an education issue because kids who don't have health care are not going to succeed in school. It is an issue for jobs and employment because people that do not have good health care do not succeed at work. It's even a retirement issue because in my community, African-Americans have a lower life expectancy because of poorer health care. And so where I stand is very clear. Health care is not just a human right. It should be an American right, and I believe the best way to get there is Medicare for all, but I have an urgency about this. When I am president of the United States, I'm not going to wait. We have to do the things immediately that are going to provide better care. And on this debate, I'm sorry, there are too many people profiteering off of the pain of people in America, from from pharmaceutical companies to insurers. Literally, the overhead for insurers that they charge is 15% while Medicare's overhead is only at 2%. We can do this better, and every single day I will be fighting to give people more access and more affordable costs until we get to my goal, which is, is every American having health care. Let's see, he says pharmace- pharmaceutical companies and insurers are profiteering, which I think is probably largely true. Um, Inslee shifted the question to abortion rights for some reason. I didn't quite get that. It should not be an option in the United States of America for any insurance company to deny woman coverage for their exercise of their right of choice. And I am the only candidate here who has passed a law protecting a woman's right of reproductive health and health insurance. And I'm the only candidate who has passed a public option And I respect everybody's goals and plans here. But we do have one candidate that's actually advanced the ball. And we got to have access for everyone. I've done it as a public. Klobuchar and Gabbard, I couldn't really figure out what they were talking about. Castro. Oh, boy. This was a real clunker from Castro, I think. He started talking. He kind of followed Inslee on the abortion rights thing, pro-choice thing. And he said, a woman in the trans community can exercise her right to choose. I just want to say there's three women up here that have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose. So I'll start with that. Um, and then I just want to make very clear, I think we 
share the goal of universal health care. And the idea I put out there, the public option, which the governor was just talking about, this idea is that you use Medicare or Medicaid without any insurance companies involved. You could do it either way. And it, the estimates are 13 million people would see a reduction in their premiums. 12 more million people would get covered. So I think it is a beginning and the way you start and the way you move to universal health care. Secretary Castro, this one is for you. All of you on stage support a woman's right to an abortion. You all support some version of a government health care option. Would your plan cover abortion, Mr. Secretary? Yes, it would. Uh, I don't believe only in reproductive uh, freedom. I believe in reproductive justice. And, you know, what that means is that just because a woman, or let's also not forget someone in the trans community, a trans female, uh, is poor, doesn't mean they shouldn't have the right to exercise that right to choose. And so I absolutely would cover the right to have an abortion. More than that, uh, everybody in this crowd and watching at home knows that in our country today, a person's right to choose is under assault in places like Missouri, in Alabama, in Georgia. I would appoint judges to the federal bench that understand the precedent of Roe v. Wade and will respect it. And in addition to that, make sure that we fight hard as we transition our healthcare system to one where everybody can get and exercise that right. I was like, what? How does that work? <laughs> I mean, I think there are some things that like people are like, oh, Castro did really good last night. And at times he did on certain issues he did, but how does a clunker like that get by? If you're a trans woman, you may be, you Don't know, try to do the woman. math, Chai. You're going you're to be accused of transphobia here. <laughs> you can be... Um, this, okay, i got to be very careful. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you, could, you can be a trans woman who is pro-choice, but you cannot be, with the current medical situation of the world, a trans woman who is <laughs> making the choice to have an abortion, right? Am I, am I eating crazy pills here? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe that one went unremarked. So. Yeah. I think I he was know. mixing up two talking points there, possibly. <laughs> I, I think it's just like he wants to be pro-choice, but he also wants to get something pro-LBGTQ in there as well. And it's just kind of like he's mixing his metaphors. And yeah. I don't know. It's it's not a good look, I don't think. I mean, for I mean, I don't know. I don't want to do Republicans work for them. But if you want to make, you know, the kind of the, the social justice wing of the Democratic Party look ridiculous, that line is. Oh, it's it's gold. So <laughs> Republicans don't listen to me. They don't. They're, they're probably. What, who am I talking to, Bob? The, the Republicans probably stopped listening to my episodes after episode like 33. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're way past that. <laughs> yeah. Julian Castro won the woke Olympics on the first night. <laughs> When he said trans females should have the right to an abortion, I agree. <laughs> now, if only they had a uterus. <laughs> Try selling that in the red states. If a man identifies a woman, then we stand with her right not only to imagine that she's pregnant, but to terminate that pregnancy, which is not possible. <laughs> No, really. So, so that was kind of the healthcare thing. Um, I think then they went to immigration. Um, 
I don't know. What did you think about immigration? Who did you, what did you, did you have any? Uh, yeah, I, I, well, we were talking about Beto and, and Julian Castro. This is where they had their big throwdown over the, uh, over the immigration debate. There are undocumented children being held alone in detention, even as close as Homestead, Florida, right here, less than 30 miles from where we are tonight. Fathers and mothers and children are dying while trying to enter the United States of America. We saw that image today that broke our hearts, and they had names. Oscar Martinez and his 23-month-old daughter Valeria died trying to cross the river to ask for asylum in this country. Last month, more than 130,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border. Secretary Castro, if you were president today, oi, what would you specifically do? Thank you very much, uh, Jose. I'm very proud that in April I became the first candidate to put forward a comprehensive immigration plan. And we saw those images. <laughs> Watching that image of, of Oscar and his daughter Valeria uh, is heartbreaking. It should also piss us all off. If I were president today, and it should spur us to action, if I were president today, I would sign an executive order that would get rid of Trump's zero tolerance policy, the remain in Mexico policy, and the metering policy. This metering policy is basically what prompted Oscar and Valeria to make that risky swim across the river. They have been playing games with people who are coming and trying to seek asylum at our ports of entry. Oscar and Valeria went to a port of entry and then they were denied the ability to make an asylum claim. So they got frustrated and they tried to cross the river and they died because of that. On day one, sorry. On day I'm one, I would do that seconds. executive order that would address metering and then I would follow that up in my first 100 days with immigration reform that would honor asylum claims that would put undocumented immigrants as long as they haven't committed a serious crime on a pathway to citizenship and that would go to the root cause of the issue, which is we need a Marshall Plan for Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador so that people can find safety and opportunity at home instead of coming to the United States to seek it. Senator Booker, what would you do on day one? And this is a situation that the next president will inherit. Yes. Es de presidente ha atacado, ha demonizado los inmigrantes. Es inaceptable. Voy a cambiar este. On day one, I will make sure that number one, we end the ICE policies and the customs and border policies that are violating the human rights. When people come to their, this country, they do not leave their human rights at the border. Number two. I will make sure that we reinstate DACA, that we reinstate pathways to citizenship for DACA recipients and to make sure that people that are here on temporary protected status can stay and remain here. And then finally, we need to make sure that we address the issues that made Oscar and Valeria come in the first place by making major investments in the Northern Triangle, not like this president is doing, by ripping away the resources we need to actually solve this problem. We cannot surrender our values and think that we're going to get border security. We actually will lose security and our values. We must fight for both. Congress, if, I might, if I might very briefly.
exactly, and this is an important point. You know, my plan, and I'm glad to see that Senator Booker, Senator Warren, and Governor Inslee agree with me on this. My plan also includes getting rid of, rid of Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act to go back to the way we used to treat this when somebody comes across the border, not to criminalize desperation, to treat that as a civil violation. And, and here's why it's important. We see all of this horrendous family separation. They use that law, Section 1325, to justify under the law separating little Thank children you. from their families. Jose, and so I want to challenge just, every single candidate on this stage to support the repeal of Section 1325. Jose, my, 30 I, seconds. I, I, as my friend here said, I agree with him on that issue, but folks should understand that the separation of children from families doesn't just go on at our border. It happens in our communities as ICE are ripping away parents from their American children, spouses and the like, and are creating fear in cities all across this country where parents are afraid to even drop their kids off to school or go to work. We but must Jose, end we those policies as well. We have discussion about immigration Mayor. in this country because look at the bottom line here. Those tragic, that tragic photo of those that parent, that child, and I'm saying this as a father, every American should feel that in their heart, and every American should say that is not America, those are not our values, but we have to get under the skin of why we have this crisis in our system, because we're not being honest about the division that's been fomented in this country, the way that American citizens have been told that immigrants somehow created their misery and their pain and their challenges. For all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream's not working for you, the immigrants didn't do that to you. The big corporations did that to you. The 1% did that to you. We need to be the party of working people, and that includes a party of immigrants, but first we have to tell working people in America who are hurting that we're going to be on their side every single time against those big corporations who created this mess to begin with and remind people we're all in this together. If we don't change that debate, that politics that's holding us back, we won't get all these reforms people are talking about. That's what Thank we you. need to do as Democrats. So we have to get to why people are If I could, I'm sorry. Oh, Congresista O'Rourke, ¿qué haría usted en el primer día si usted es presidente sobre esta realidad que está ocurriendo? What would you do, Congressman, day one at the White House? Vamos a tratar cada persona con el respeto y dignidad que merecen como humanos. We would not turn back Valeria and her father, Oscar. We would accept them into this country and follow our own asylum laws. We would not build walls. We would not put kids in cages. In fact, we would spare well, no expense to reunite the families a lot of that have been families. separated already. Congressman, and we would not criminally would prosecute any family because who is fleeing violence for the repeal and of persecution. We would make sure... Secretary, let him finish, and I will give you... His policy uh, but let him finish. Let him finish, please. Yes. We would not detain any family fleeing violence, in fact, fleeing the deadliest countries on the face of the planet today. We would implement a family case management program so they could be cared for in the community at a fraction of the cost. And then we would rewrite our immigration laws in our own image, free dreamers forever from any fear of deportation by making them U.S. citizens here in this country, invest in solutions in Central America, work with regional stakeholders so there's no reason to make Thank that 2,000-mile journey to but this country. Secretary, I'll give you 30 seconds. Let's be very clear. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border, to incarcerate the, the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates In to fact, do that. 
I, I just think it's a mistake, Bethel. I think it's a mistake. And I think that, that if you truly want to change the system, then we got to repeal that section. If not, Thank you. then it so might as well be the same let, policy. Let, let me very very respond to this very briefly. Actually, as a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge I'm in this country. If you're about, fleeing, if you're fleeing desperation, asylum, then I'm I want to make about, sure I'm I want to make sure that you're treated else. with respect. I'm still talking about everybody but, else. But you're looking at just one small part of this. I'm talking about a comprehensive rewrite of our immigration that's laws. That's not true. And if we do that, I don't think it's asking too much for people. I'm talking about laws. I'm talking about millions of folks. A lot of folks that are coming are not seeking asylum. A lot of them are undocumented immigrants, right? And you said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what. Section 18, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21, and Title 22 already cover if human trafficking. I think that you should do your homework we're going on to this make issue. Sure that they're if you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this section. This is an issue that we should and could be talking about for a long time, and we will for but a long can, time. Can we talk about the conditions as to why gonna, people are coming here? Let's let Savannah. Sorry, Savannah. I know it's just we could go on. But rather than talking about specific provisions, we really have to talk about why these people are coming to our country and what are we going to do to actually make a difference in these countries. Congressman, you'll get your chance. Let's continue the discussion. Senator Klobuchar, yes. let's talk about what Secretary Castro just said. He wants to no longer have it be a crime to illegally cross the border. Do you support that? Do you think it should be a civil offense only? And if so, do you worry about potentially incentivizing people to come here? Immigrants, they do not diminish America. They are America. Um, and I am happy to look at his proposal, but I do think you want to make sure that you have provisions in place that allow you to go after traffickers and allow you to go after people um, who are uh, violating the law. What I really think we need to step back and talk about is the economic imperative here. Um, and that is uh, that 70 of our Fortune 500 companies are headed up by people that came from other countries. 25% of our U.S. Nobel laureates were born in other countries. Uh, we have a situation right now where we need workers in our fields and in our factories. We need them to start small businesses. We need their ideas. And this president uh, has literally gone backwards uh, at a time where our economy needs immigrants. And so my proposal is to look at that 2013 bill that passed the Senate with Republican support to upgrade that bill to make it as good as possible and get it done. It brings the debt down by $158 billion. Senator. It gives a path to citizenship for citizens, for people who can become citizens. And it would Senator, be so much better for our economy in America. That's time. Thank you. Congressman Ryan, same question. Should it be a crime to illegally cross the border or should it be a civil offense only? Well, I, I agree with uh, Secretary Castro. I think there are other provisions in the law that will allow you to prosecute people for coming over here if they're dealing in drugs and other things. Th that's already established in the law. So there's no need to repeat it. And I think it's abhorrent. We're talking about this father uh, who got killed with his daughter. And and in the issues here, the way these kids are being treated, if you go to Guantanamo Bay, there are terrorists 
that are held that get better health care than those kids that have tried to cross the border in the United States. That needs to stop. And I think the president should immediately ask doctors and nurses to go immediately down to the border and start taking care of these kids. What kind of country are we running here where we have a president of the United States who's so focused on hate and fear and division? And what ha has happened now, the end result, is now we've got kids literally laying in their own snot with three-week-old diapers that haven't been changed. We've got to tell this president that is not a sign Savannah, of strength, Mr. Congress, president. Congress. That is a sign of weakness. Senator Booker, I'll, I'll go to you. But no, a, a lot of people, Jose asked the question, if you're president on day one, what will you do with the fact that you will have families here? There's been a lot of talk about what you'll do in the first 100 days, about legislation. What will you actually do with these families? How will you care for them? Will they be detained or will they not be? Well, this is a related and, and brief point because what we're talking about, what Secretary Castro and I are talking about, is that we have the power to better deal with this problem through the civil process than the criminal process. I have been to some of the largest private prisons, which are repugnant to me that people are profiting off incarceration and their immigration lockups. Our country has made so many mistakes by criminalizing things, whether it's immigration, whether it's mental illness, whether it's addiction. We know that this is not the way to deal with problems. There is a humane way that affirms human rights and human dignity and actually solve this problem. Donald Trump isn't solving this problem. We've seen under his leadership a surge at our border. We solve this problem by making investments in the Northern Triangle to stop the reasons why people are being driven here in the first place. And we make sure we use our resources to provide health care, to affirm the values and human dignity of the people that come here, because we cannot sacrifice our values, our ideals as a nation for border security. We can have both by doing this the right way. All right, Senator, thank you. Let me go to Governor Inslee on this. What would you do on day one? Same question I just asked Cory Booker. I have yet to hear an answer there from anyone on this no stage. What will you do with the families that will be here? There is no reason for the detention and separation of these children. They should be released pending their hearings, and they should have a hearing and the law should be followed. That's what should happen. And we should do what we're doing in Washington State. I'm proud that we've passed a law that prevents local law enforcement from being turned into many ICE agents. I'm proud to have been the first governor to stand up against Donald Trump's heinous Muslim ban. I'm proud to be a person who's not only talked about dreamers, but being one of the first to make sure that they get a college education so that they can realize their dreams. These are some of the most inspirational people in our state. And I'll leave you with this thought if you want to know what I think. Donald Trump the other day, other day tried to threaten me. He thought it was a threat to tell me that he would send refugees in Washington state if we passed a law that I passed. And I told him that's not a threat at all. We welcome refugees into our state. We recognize diversity as a strength. This is how we've built America. That tradition is going to continue if I'm president of the United States. Savannah, we're going to switch to another topic now. We've got a lot to get through. Let's talk. My grandfather was actually separated from his family when he came. I don't actually know enough about the details of it to tell if you know one was right or one was wrong on that. But I did think that Julian Castro decided that this is the issue he's going to take Beto down on. And okay. he had his sights set on, he was like, only one man from Texas will be the victor. <laughs> this state ain't big enough for the both of us. Exactly. Something. Although it's a pretty big state. Um, okay, well, I 
fortunately through I think I was listening to like Pod Save America or something recently and and they gave me some insight on this issue which is actually really helpful because it actually kind of helped me um cuz okay here's what okay let me kind of break it down a little bit so uh Castro basically start he launched it off he started off they asked him first about immigration and he said he wants to decriminalize uh, crossing the border uh, illegally or, you know, illegal entry or anything like that. And he said um, he said he wants to make it a civil violation instead, instead of a criminal violation. And he wants to repeal Section, hold on, let me see, 1325, which is apparently a part of the government code or something that makes it a crime to just to cross the border, you know, illegally or whatever. Um <laughs> The language is so loaded on this stuff. It's, you know, but um, but that's the thing that Trump has been using to put everybody in cages is basically to say, well, they're all criminals because they all crossed illegally at some point. And again, this is a this I think this is one of those points where Democrats and Republicans can't talk about this issue at all because. Democrats will talk about, well, we need to. Yeah, we need to deport people, especially if they came here illegally and then they committed a crime in America. And Republicans are like, whoa, you're going way past the line just by coming to America. They're already committed a crime. They're already criminals. And they, in fact, are illegal people because of that. Right. And so that's right. I think that's the miscommunication that Democrats and Republicans have is like. And according to this law, apparently the act of crossing is a criminal act. And so and so de facto, everybody is automatically a criminal. And that that's the justification for the uh, mm-hmm. for the concentration camps. Right. Let's call it let's call it what it is. AOC. So yeah. BTW, um, that was the issue. Remember that column I wrote about the guy that I knew from college that unfriended me on Facebook? Okay. Maybe, is this a recent article? Uh, for new, uh, for Nuvo that I wrote. Do you remember that one? Uh, I was like, you should unfollow people instead of unfriending them on Facebook. I don't unfriend oh, people. Oh yeah, yeah. I do remember that article. Yeah. That was the, uh, the issue that sparked that them to unfriend me is that I said, concentration camps and this was like a year ago so yeah <laughs> and i it's, can't believe I mean, this is like even up for debate like read a dictionary it's what it is you know the united states is running concentration camps on our southern border and that is exactly what they are they are concentration camps and um if that doesn't bother you i don't I, got, I like, we can have, okay, whatever. I want to talk to the people that are concerned enough with humanity to say that we should not, that never again means something. And that um, the fact that concentration camps are now an institutionalized practice in the home of the free is extraordinarily disturbing. Um, and we need to do something about it. This week, children, uh, immigrant children were moved to the same internment camps where the Japanese were held in, in the early, in the earlier 20th century. And this is, um, this is not even about a crisis for, this is not just about the immigrant communities being held in concentration camps being a crisis, this is a crisis for ourselves. This is a crisis on if America will remain America at 
in its actual principles and values, or if we are losing to an authoritarian and fascist presidency. And so I think that that is, um, you know, I don't use those words lightly. I don't use those words to just throw bombs. Um, I use that word because that is what an administration that creates concentration camps is. Um, a presidency that creates concentration camps is fascist. In my experience, like Republicans are historically totally illiterate, um, largely. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's a broad thing to say. I'm sure you could find a Republican here or there who knows more about this or that incident or something. But, you know, I, I mean, it was the I mean, it was the. I mean, Hitler based his idea basically on American treatment of the Native Americans, where we were concentrating people on reservations in America, moving them around to places that were undesirable locations. I mean, that mm -hmm. was the basis for the concentration camps. Absolutely. The final the final solution was the final solution. There were other uh, efforts. I mean, there were different ideas tossed around the Third Reich about uh, deportations, about this or that, sending them to Madagascar, sending them to. Uh, Israel sent him to different places before they arrived at the conclusion that they just needed to kill them. They started off by killing, you know, the mentally handicapped and the the life's not worthy of living or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's a uh, I don't know. It it wasn't just like boom Auschwitz one day. So and no matter how you you, you can say maybe we're not even on that path. It, it may never get to that point here. Maybe, uh, but definitionally it is a concentration of people being put in a place that is not a prison exactly i mean it's definitionally correct to say that it's a uh, concentration camp if if you don't like the implication of what those words mean i mean maybe you need to re-examine the policy right right so yeah yeah so no no controversy there mm -hmm. uh i think booker supported castro he said he spoke spanish um de Blasio, I didn't really catch. But yeah, O'Rourke, also speaking Spanish, he does not want to repeal 1325. He says, only decriminal, decriminalize refugees. He says, my concern is the refugees. Okay, I just don't want to, you know, make the refugees be criminals. And I think Castro goes farther and says, no, not just refugees. I'm talking about people who come here for jobs, people who come here to work as well. They should not be treated as criminals just for the act of coming here. It's, you know, uh, yeah. And I, I think that that's uh, I think I think he has the better point than Beto there. So, um, you know, I think if you treat everybody as criminals automatically, then the people within that community, which is, you know, Donald Trump doesn't even want to count them in the census these days. Right. Mm -hmm. But the people in that community who may be really committing crimes and may be really violent, may be doing some bad things. They're all lumped in together with a whole bunch of families and a whole bunch of other people who are just here to work or they're actual refugees. If they're all criminals, then you're not really actually looking for the dangerous people, right? And you can't weed them out. So Right. Does this include the people that are just seeking asylum? Uh yeah. Well, according to thirteen twenty five, yes, because if they Really? Because I thought that yeah. was legal to present yourself for asylum regardless. It is, but the Trump administration is acting as though it's not. Oh, wow. Right. I mean, just a few days ago, the, the, the young man and his daughter who drowned in the river in that horrible mm -hmm. photo, which is very reminiscent of the one we saw out of, I want to say, Italy or something a few years Syri ago. Syrian refugees. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah. I mean, they had apparently come to a point of entry to present themselves as refugees, were turned away, got frustrated, tried to swim across the Rio Grande, right? Mm -hmm. And then he and his daughter drowned. It's fucking disgusting. Yep. It's, uh, you know, it's... uh, Real life party, once again. It's a disgrace. Absolute disgrace. Mm -hmm. It's... uh, So... Yeah. So, I mean, and yes, those people should be able to present themselves, you know, Donald Trump with his we need to have a complete and total shutdown on Well, he was talking about Muslim immigration until we figure out what's going on. I think it's the same thing with, you know, people coming from South and Central America. He doesn't he wants to treat everybody, refugees, workers, drug gangs. He wants to treat them all basically like rapists and drug gangs. regardless of the actual details. And so I, I think Castro is correct that uh, I think he's correct here anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, um, let's see. Klobuchar was also against Castro's plan. Ryan supported Castro. Uh, he made the point that terrorists in Guantanamo Bay get better treatment than the children that are being held in the ICE facilities. Um it, Yeah. The uh, Inslee says release the children, have hearings and follow the law. Which kind of sounds I don't I don't know if you if you follow the law as enforced by Republicans right now then they're just going to deport them all anyways and stuff and we don't even know where the parents are anymore in a lot of cases it's you know it's an unmitigated disaster it's there's no this is one of the most upsetting and disturbing things about the Trump presidency it's one of those things that there's just no coming back from I think right mm-hmm. um, these kids how long has it been one year, year and a half now that they've been living in these god awful conditions without their families? Mm-hmm. No idea where their parents are. Some of them have died. Some of them have been molested, raped. Uh, you know, they've got what do they say? They've got like eight year olds taking care of two year olds. Bit diapers not getting changed. It's it's just fucking disgraceful. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you've got people like uh, that Jim from our state up there like well you know we don't actually have to provide soap or toothpaste or toothbrushes to these children we don't have the budget for it fuck off that's absolute you know no it's a, this is a hostage situation mm-hmm. yeah. um uh and delaney started shouting at this point the first of his many outbursts he says my grandfather actually got separated from his family when he came here uh the host was already changing the subject when he started shouting this out from the corner, his corner on the right there. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else on immigration? That's most of what I've got. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just it's just gross. It's one of the most depressing things about this time in history, honestly. And yeah, I mean, it goes back to that uh, piece that I read. I can't remember how long ago, but the guy from The Atlantic, Adam Surer. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, the cruelty is the point. That's what they like. Like people are like, oh, this is so mean. Why is this so mean? It's like that's what these people voted for. That's what they wanted. They wanted it to be mean, and they're gonna put all the blame on the parents trying to bring their kids here, and no blame to be had on the supposedly Christian administration. I could go on, but you understand what I'm saying. Like it's just you know they, they're trying to be mean to be a deterrent, and it's cruel because it's the point, and people are like, donate donate soap and toothpaste and then oh it gets turned away what wait a second you mean the issue isn't that we don't have the resources it's just that we don't want to give it to them what yeah. <laughs> like 
Yeah, there was, I mean, there was something I saw recently. I think it was, uh, I forget if it was, uh, oh God, I forget who it was, but there was a, there was a screen cap of the Hill, I think, reporting that Nancy Pelosi had said to Donald Trump in a meeting that she said, you know, you are scaring children. I've talked to my five grandchildren. Yeah. They're scared. You are scaring children with this, this treatment at the border or something. And it's like, lady, yeah. you don't get it. Mm-mm. He does not give a shit. The fact that you're coming to him and saying, please stop scaring the children, Mr. Trump. He likes it. That's Mm -hmm. the point. He doesn't. You guys are not on the same side. You're not going to reach his conscience here. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that's just more evidence that she is just entirely mismatched for this historical moment. She's she's playing a different game. Mm -hmm. Not a smart game. It's not 3D chess. No, you can't shame this guy. Children are scared. Good. He's happy about that. He wants Americans to be scared. He's trying to scare Americans of immigrants, Muslims, Hispanics. I mean, that's good. My plan is working. Kids are scared. People are scared. They vote Republican. People are scared. We have more division in America, which benefits me. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants. Yeah. Well, it's like that report I heard about. I remember when that tape came out of, you know, the kids crying in the camp or whatever, and people were shocked. But, like, apparently I heard that Stephen Miller, uh, that, you know, uh, that Jewish Nazi guy in the White House, yep. uh, you know, he uh, he apparently he was he was he was in, he was loved it. He heard that and he was great. That was exactly what he wanted. So it's like, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The yep. kids are crying. Yep. I know. Yep. <laughs> Goody. These are the drones you're looking for. Exactly. <laughs> this exactly. is, you know. So, yeah. Anyways, immigration. What a mess. Mm-hmm. OK, then I think they came to the Iran deal. Where I think they went to Cory Booker first, and he said something that was so unbelievably naive that I, I just couldn't believe it. Okay, he, he came out and said something like, let me, let me look at this here. He, they said, would you rejoin the Iran deal? And he said he wouldn't rejoin the Iran deal. Um, he wants a better deal. He wants to renegotiate for things. I think that I, I think what he means by a better deal is Iran has to stop supporting Hezbollah or has to give up on the Houthi rebels in Yemen or they have to this or that Syria, Bashar al-Assad and all this stuff. Um, that's not part of the deal. OK, that stuff is all separate from the nuclear deal. The nu- If America says the nukes is the thing we want, Iran is an existential threat to America and oh by the way Israel that's the reason we did the deal right all the other stuff was not even included in the deal and guess what Cory Booker Donald Trump ripped up the last deal we will be lucky if we can get Iran to come back to the negotiating table let alone trying to negotiate for more than we got the first time we'll be lucky to get the first deal back again so this thing I'm not going to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal is bullshit It's not going to happen. You're not going to get a better deal than we had the first time. You're probably going to get less. Deal with it. You'll be very lucky if you say you want to rejoin the deal and you can do that. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. that's the best you're going to get with Iran right now. First and foremost, it was a mistake to pull out of that deal. And one of the reasons why we're seeing this hostility now is because Donald Trump is marching us to a far more dangerous situation. 
Literally, he took us out of a deal that gave us transparency into their nuclear program and pushed back a nuclear breakout 10, 20 years. And now we see Iran threatening to go further and we're pull, being pulled in further and further into this crisis. We need to renegotiate and get back into a deal, but I'm not going to have a primary platform to say unilaterally I'm going to rejoin that deal because when I am president of the United States, I'm going to do the best I can to secure this country and that region and make sure that if I have an opportunity to leverage a better deal, I'm going to do it. So that one, that one really struck me as just extremely naive. But I think that he might have almost – that might have come into his head because isn't that what the rebranding that – Chuck and Nancy came out with for their like to combat, you know, this is the this is the Democrats new message, a better deal. Like, you know, mm. like I felt like that was like a callback to that branding of, you know, their agenda or whatever. But anyway, I don't know. Yeah, that's that was not a good look for him. Yeah, I mean. While Obama was negotiating with Iran. Republicans in the Senate, I believe, maybe the House, I think the Senate sent a letter directly to the Iranians that said, don't negotiate with Obama. It won't be honored. And there was talk about that being, was that, was that a hatch act violation or what was that negotiating uh, with a foreign power against the wishes of the government? The yes, administration that would be the hatch. I was thinking about the Logan act, but that was the thing that Kellyanne Conway violated. So, okay. so many <laughs> violations. Else. Yeah. Right. These days. A top White House advisor, the counsel to the president, in some legal trouble this hour. The U.S. Office of Special Counsel, that is an existing government office, it's not the Russia Special Counsel. The Office of Special Counsel says counsel to the president, Kellyanne Conway, broke the law. The OSC Special Counsel, his name's Henry Kerner, says Conway violated the Hatch Act. That's a law that prohibits mixing government business and politics. He says she broke that law when she said this on CNN's New Day. When the president endorsed Luther Strange, Luther Strange shot up in the polls uh, tremendously by double digits. When the president endorsed Roy Moore, when he started to talk about Doug Jones, the opponent here, which you still don't want to talk about, but the president does, uh, Roy Moore took a lead in the polls again. Why is that? Because the president himself came out and said he doesn't want a liberal in the Senate. He doesn't want a liberal Democrat in the Senate. He wants a reliable vote for taxes, for life. You'd rather have an accused child molester than a Democrat? The president also said something else that you don't seem to ever want to reflect, which is the president said Roy Moore has denied those allegations. And the president said you have to take that into account, too. And of course, of course, you know, Republicans never get held accountable for anything. So they didn't get any real trouble for basically sending a letter saying, even though you're negotiating with the duly elected president of the United States, don't make a deal with him because it's not going to be enforceable. Yeah, that was that was the Hatch Act. Yeah, I even read an editorial about that at the time because it was Tom Cotton, I believe, that was the one yeah. that read, led that charge. So, Yeah. And so and so they warned the Iranians about that back then, back in the day. And then, of course, when Trump comes in, they rip up the deal. And, you know, things happen for a while. Things don't really happen. But then, you know, things happen. The Straits of Hormuz, a drone gets shot down. All this stuff happens. Um, and if the if the Democrats you know, God bless, they, they, they win the election here in a couple of years and the, or a year, and then they go back in there and they want to try to negotiate with Iran. Iran's going to have even less um, impetus to negotiate with them because they've seen, oh, we can make a deal with you guys. You guys sound reasonably reasonable. But then, you know, four years later, some you, you can't keep these crazy Republicans out of the out of the presidency and then we get screwed. Mm-hmm. So. They're not going to get a they're not going to get a better deal.
they'll be very lucky if they can get the old deal back. That's that's my read on it. I I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I'm not as foreign policy adept as uh, Cory Booker though. I don't know. Um. Yeah, we're we're coming back into the, those negotiations from a real place of weakness. So, mm-hmm. um, guns. I guess guns might have been the next thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, O'Rourke talked about an assault weapons ban. Klobuchar doesn't want to hurt hunters, but she's okay with some other things. Uh, Booker says we have licenses to drive, so we should have licenses for guns. I think he said there were. Seven shootings in his own neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey last weekend or something. Um, uh, de Blasio said something about police, black people, community relations. Uh, and then he strangely went to hit Buttigieg in Indiana for the uh, for the police shooting of the African-American man. In, yeah, in- I heard that. Senator Warren, uh, we're going to get to the uh, gun question here in Parkland, Florida. It's just north of here in Broward County. As you know, it has created a lot of teenage activism uh, on the gun issue. Uh, It has inspired a lot of you to come out with more robust plans to deal with guns, including assault weapons ban. But even if you're able to implement that, what do you do about the hundreds of millions of guns already out there? And does the federal government have to play a role in dealing with it? So um, in this period of time that I've been running for president, I've had more than 100 town halls. I've taken more than 2,000 unfiltered questions. And the single hardest question I've gotten, I got one from a little boy and I got one from a little girl. And that is to say, when you're president, how are you going to keep us safe? That's our responsibility as adults. Seven children will die today from gun violence, children and teenagers. And they won't just die in mass shootings. They'll die on sidewalks, they'll die in playgrounds, they'll die in people's backyards. Gun violence is a national health emergency in this country, and we need to treat it like that. So what can we do? We can do the things that are sensible. We can do the universal background checks. We can ban the weapons of war. But we can also double down on the research and find out what really works, where it is that we can make the differences at the margins that will keep our children safe. We need to treat this like the virus that's killing our children. Uh, You didn't address, do you you think the federal government needs to go and figure out a way to get the guns that are already out there? What I think we need to do is we need to treat it like a serious research problem, which we have not done. You know, guns in the hands of a collector who's had them for decades, who's never fired them, who takes safety seriously, that's very different from guns that are sold and turned over quickly. We can't treat this as an across-the-board problem. We have to treat it like a public health emergency. That means bring data to bear, and it means make real change in this country, whether it's politically popular or not. Senator Booker, you have a program. fight for our children. Senator Booker... You have a federal government buyback program uh, in your plan. How is that going to work? Well, first of all, I want to say my colleague and I both have been hearing this on the campaign trail. But what's even worse is I hear gunshots in my neighborhood. I think I'm the only one. I hope I'm the only one on this panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood just last week. Someone I knew, Shahad Smith, was killed with an assault rifle at the top of my block last year. 
for millions of Americans, this is not a policy issue. This is an urgency. And for those who have not been directly affected, they're tired of living in a country where their kids go to school to learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and how to deal with an active shooter in their school. This is something that I'm tired of, and I'm tired of hearing people, all they have to offer is thoughts and prayers. In my faith, people say faith without works is dead. So we will find a way. But the reason we have a problem right now is we've let the, the corporate gun lobby frame this debate. It is time that we have bold actions and a bold agenda. I will get that done as President of the United States because this is not about policy, this is personal. Thank you, Senator Booker. Secretary Castro, I'd like to talk to you about something that Senator Booker just mentioned there, the idea of active shooter drills in schools. As school shootings seem like an almost every day or every week occurrence now, they don't make a complete news cycle anymore, no matter the death toll. As parents are so afraid as their kids go off to school that their kids will be caught up in something like this, next to nothing has changed in federal law that might affect the prevalence of school shootings. Is this a problem that is going to continue to get worse over our lifetimes, or is there something that you would do as president that you really think would turn it around? Yeah, Rachel, I, uh, I'm the dad of a 10-year-old girl, Karina, who's here tonight, and the worst thing is knowing that your child might be worried about what could happen at school, a place that's supposed to be safe. The answer to your question is no, we don't have to accept that. And I believe that on January 20th, 2021, at 12.01 p.m., we're gonna have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate. And the activists of Parkland, folks from Moms Demand, who have risen up, risen up across the United States and inspired so many people. You know, we may not have seen yet legislative action, but, we're getting closer. The House took a vote. In the Senate, the question often is, if, it's, if the decision is between 60 votes, a filibuster, or passing common sense gun reform, I'm gonna choose common sense gun reform. So I believe that we're gonna be able to get that done in 2021. Rachel, Secretary Castro, Rachel, thank you. Rachel, I have something, I have something to add to this uh, briefly. We'll give you, you, you what, 30 seconds talk, for follow-up on that question, on that answer from Secretary Castro, Congressman Ryan. You're talking about in the schools. These kids are traumatized. I support all the gun reforms here. We need to start dealing with the trauma that our kids have. We need trauma-based care in, in every school. We need social and emotional learning in every school. 90% of the shooters who do school shootings come from the school they're in, and 73% of them feel shamed, traumatized, or bullied. We need to make sure that these kids feel connected to the school. That means a mental health counselor in every yeah. single school in the United States. We need to start playing offense. If our kids are so traumatized that they're getting a gun and going into our schools, we're doing something wrong too, and we need reform around trauma-based care. Congressman O'Rourke, you're a Texan who's campaigned, you campaigned all over the state in 2018 in the most conservative parts there. What do you tell a gun owner who may agree with you on everything else? Okay, but says, you know what, the Democrats, if I vote for them in there, they're gonna take my gun away. And even though I agree with you on all these other issues, I get, how do you have that conversation? Here's how we had that conversation in Texas. I shared with them what I learned from those students who survived the Santa Fe High School shooting. A young student named Bree, uh, her friend Marcel, who survived another shooting, uh, the mother of a victim who lost her life, Rhonda Hart, they talked about universal background checks, where you close every loophole. We know that they save lives. 
talks about ending the sales of assault weapons into our communities. Those weapons of war were designed to kill people as effectively and as efficiently as possible. They should belong on the battlefield and not in our communities. Red flag laws, so that if someone poses a danger to themselves or to someone else, they're stopped before it's too late. And what I found in each one of those 254 counties is that Democrats and independents and Republicans, gun owners and non-gun owners alike agreed. But this effort must be led by the young people that you referenced at the beginning of this issue. Those students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas led the charge here in Florida, and they've been able to change those laws. They're making our democracy work, ensuring that our values and our interests okay. and our priorities are reflected in the laws that we pass. Chuck, hey, thank I, you, I, thank I, you, I, you I, Congressman O'Rourke. Hang on. Uh, let, me, let me give 30 seconds. Um, Senator Klobuchar, the Iron Range, I'm curious. Gun confiscation, right? If the government is buying back, how do you how do you not have that conversation? Well, that's not confiscation. You right. would give them the offer to buy back their gun. But I'll say this: I look at these proposals and I say, um, does this hurt my uncle Dick and his gear stand? Coming from a proud hunting and fishing state. These proposals don't do that. When I was a prosecutor, I supported the assault weapon ban. When I was in the Senate, I saw those moms from Sandy Hook come and try to advocate for change, and we all failed. And then, now, these Parklandkins from Florida, they started a literally a national shift. You know why? It's just like with gay marriage. When kids talk to their parents yep. and their grandparents, they say, I don't understand why we can't put these sensible things in place. They listen. And all if right. we get bested by Senator, a bunch of 17-year-olds, cool. it's the best thing Senator, that ever happened. Thank you. Trust Senator, 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 thank you. Senator Booker, let me go to you on, on another we matter, another actually. Issue. Disturbing. I don't know what's going on there. I think, uh, I think, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kamala Harris also hit him the next night when she, after she was finishing up her, her you know, her blitzkrieg on, uh, on Joe Biden, I think she said something like, and in my, in my community, in my, in my uh, area where I control, we keep our, we keep our body cams turned on on the police. Right. And I think that that was a shot back towards Buttigieg that, oh, you know, the body cam wasn't operating at the time, so we don't really know what's happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And, and in the meantime, while de Blasio is saying this stuff, Delaney is just shouting. He's trying to shout over de Blasio to get his turn in again. Yeah. Anyways. Those seem to be the notable ones. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you noticed anybody saying about guns? Or Yeah, I mean, most of that probably we should save for the second debate, because I really I feel like they got into that more uh, in the second debate when they were uh, talking about uh, the Swalwell plan to do the buybacks and stuff. They had a pretty detailed discussion of that. So I, I felt like they had more on the second night about that. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll have to watch some more about that then. I, I need to go through the, the uh, second night in much greater detail. Mm -hmm. um, then they talked about climate change, which was Inslee's big thing, of course. I didn't, you know, I don't know. I didn't note a lot about that. Then they talked about LBGT issues. I didn't really note a lot about that, although, you know, Gabbard has had, Tulsi Gabbard has had her problematic past as a kind of a well, I don't know. I think she said some things on social media many years ago that were not very uh, nice towards people in the, those communities and stuff. And she's she says, you know, for the past six years as a as a person in the in the in the government, she's governed in a different way and she's evolved on that. So 
Yeah. I mean, I guess to give her some credit, which I'm not really inclined to do, but no. uh, to give her some credit, I mean, Obama did also, quote unquote, evolve on that issue as well. And so did Hillary Clinton. Uh, so, you that's, know, I that's, mean, that's that's you know, very fair. But I don't think that Obama was saying the kind of things that she was saying about those. She was people. more extreme. That's true. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's I, I think she was actually against them. I think right. I mean. Obama wasn't quite there on the marriage, the weddings. He wanted everything else, just not the weddings and stuff because it didn't poll well. But he mm-hmm. wasn't like actively posting on Facebook bad things about people in that community, which, yeah, I mean, we should we should like do some research and like drop in exactly what she said here on social media. I, I do this, remember it, it being pretty harsh. Yeah, whatever. It was it was, it was so. problematic, I think. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's different than like I used to be against this policy, but then I evolved on it versus I used to actively dislike these people and post about it on Facebook, but now I'm not because it's, you know, yeah. whatever. It's necessary now. I don't know. Tulsi Gabbard is the Kremlin's favorite candidate, so that should tell you a lot. So. <laughs> Tul- Tulsi Gabbard is – there is something very unsettling about her. There's something wrong there, yeah. Like she went against uh, – she went with Putin against Obama on Syria and – Mm-hmm. she's yeah she's had many strange turns so yeah the um there were yeah there i mean there's there's something we're going to get to in a minute with her where she and i think congressman ryan went at it and stuff and there was some majorly problematic things she said there i think but um mm-hmm. uh, she, i don't know like we've talked about before i, I think and edit this out if it's not true i think she's a hindu and so she supports uh, she supports the president or the the leader of India, uh, Modi. Yeah, who is a Hindu nationalist, which is very problematic. And mm-hmm. he was leading at a time when uh, thousands of people were killed in a riot in his state, which he seemed to support. And so a, a lot of people on the left seem to think Tulsi Gabbard is, you know, kind of this Bernie-esque person who's also a foreign policy whiz. I think she's a disaster on foreign policy in just about every way. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And I mean, she's, she's always, she, she's nice looking. She's kind of pretty. <laughs> she's very composed and very calm when she's there on stage. But there, you know, the, the meeting with the, with, with uh, Bashar al-Assad at a time when that was not right. the thing to do the uh, yeah, the Putin connection there, there's something really, weird about her that i can't you know i don't know i can't really put my finger on it there's a lot of people on the left wing who like her they think you know oh yeah bernie sanders elizabeth warren and tulsi gabbard those are my top three Hmm. like i'm kind of like dude you know like one of these is not like the other two (laughs) yeah so yeah i think i don't know I, i guess maybe tulsi gabbard looks good on foreign policy if you're somebody who doesn't primarily know very much about foreign policy, I guess. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that I know everything about foreign policy, but if you take a very simplistic, you know, uh, anti-war stance on the left wing, then maybe she sounds reasonable. But no, it's mm-hmm. I think when you when you dig deep on some of these issues, she is a disaster. Yeah. So. Sure. Um, and so what what happened here was, OK, well, let's see. There was a question. I thought it was a good question. And it was a question from somebody on Twitter or something. Let's see. The question was something uh, Holt, Lester Holt said there was an audience question. Basically, does the U.S. have a duty to prevent genocide? 
Um, let's see, there were various answers. I think Beto O'Rourke said, uh, uh, yes, but with allies support. Uh, okay, well, maybe. I mean, maybe if people are being, gen if a genocide is being committed somewhere in the world, hopefully our allies are in a geopolitical position domestically where they will want to support America, although I don't think America has much credibility with most countries to intervene in anything anymore. And a lot of countries, the default answer is going to be no, you know. So uh, Inslee said only with congressional approval, which is another kind of feels to me kind of like a soft way of saying no, because mm -hmm. Congress doesn't approve anything anymore. Uh, yeah, I know we're still using the same, you know, what is it, the use of force resolution or whatever from back around 2001. Um, and that's that's a problem. But if we didn't do that, I don't know what conflict would have been approved ever, mm -hmm. you know. And I mean, I don't know. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. I don't know. I, I think I... I, I think I have different views on on uh, military intervention than some Democrats do, um, and that that would be interesting to explore sometime. But mm -hmm. uh, but but again, saying only with we can only intervene in genocide situations with congressional approval. Well, Congress isn't going to consider whether genocide is actually happening. They're going to consider: Am I a Democrat or Republican? And is the president currently a Democrat or Republican? That's as far as any consideration in Congress is ever going to go. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure in the current dynamic. So that's that's basically saying no. Mm -hmm. um, and then it got to Ryan and Gabbard, and this is where the sparks really flew. Uh, Ryan said something that he basically said, stay engaged in Afghanistan. I think the question was something like, a day or two ago, the Taliban claimed that they had killed two American soldiers. Mm -hmm. Okay, and he said we have to stay engaged in Afghanistan. And Tulsi Gabbard took big umbrage to this, and she says, no, we got to bring the troops home from Afghanistan. Uh, and she says, uh, you know, and this is in response to the Taliban a day or two ago saying they just killed two American soldiers. She's like, no, we have to come out. We have to go out now. We have to leave. Maybe. I mean, you can argue we should leave, maybe, but I don't know that that's the best answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And she says the. Let's see, then Ryan said something, well, the Taliban will start flying planes into our, our buildings again if we stay in Afghanistan. And this is where the shit hit the fan. <laughs> OK, because Tulsi Gabbard then goes on to say, um, well, the Taliban was there before us. And they'll be there after us, and we can't squash them just like every other country that's ever tried and failed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I saw Tulsi Gabbard get a lot of credit over the past several days, and I've seen Ryan get a lot of shit for this answer. And she talked about, oh, I served, and, you know, 4,000 of my brothers and sisters died in these wars. And so, you know, she does speak with some authority, but I don't know. It's... uh. But but OK, so the issue here is and then she made an issue. He said, well, the ta Taliban will start flying planes into our buildings again. And she said the Taliban didn't attack us on 9-11. That was Al Qaeda. And then he's like, well, yeah, but it was Al Qaeda was, you know, uh, protecting the Taliban. And yeah, he misspoke a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. 
But what I didn't see anybody report on was that she she misspoke too. Because in that moment, she said that, you know, she said, we can't, what did she say? She said, like, um, Taliban was there before us and they'll be there after us. We can't squash them just like every other country that's tried and failed. Okay, this is this is totally incorrect. And I know what, just like with Ryan, I know what she was trying to say. And I can see exactly where she screwed up. The Taliban was there before us. Okay, that's true. They were there before America was there in 1990, uh, in 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. But the Taliban was founded in 1994. Now, which other foreign country has tried to invade Afghanistan between 1994 and 2001 and was defeated? None. Mm-hmm. Now, what she was trying to reference was the fact that Afghanistan has the reputation as the graveyard of empires because for hundreds or thousands of years or whatever, foreign countries that have tried to invade them have been thrown out and destroyed. Mm-hmm. But that's not the Taliban. The Taliban is very modern, very recent, and has only been invaded by America. So so she was wrong on the facts too, but, but Ryan gets dinged for it, and she gets all kinds of credit for taking him down on that one. You know, it's like... She misspoke too, mm-hmm. arguably in a more egregious way. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That was that was a moment where the sparks really flew. I think, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, I don't think either of them are going to be president. So. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. Yeah, we are we are kind of making a mountain out of a molehill here. But I'm you know I'm not sure Ryan belongs on the stage either. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Tulsi Gabbard doesn't, but but. I don't know. For that to be the thing that takes him off the stage and takes him out of the running, yeah, I'll take it, but I don't think it's quite fair in a way. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I mean, and to be fair to him, yes, she did serve in the military, so you really can't say anything, right? You basically have to say, yes, yes, you're right, okay, yes, I give up, you're right. You can't, you know, you really can't engage with that once she pulls the I was a troop card, right? It's just so sad that that's such a cachet. You know, because that is, I think, one of the ways that you can get under the Republican skin, because there's just been this series of chicken hawks from mm-hmm. Bush to Cheney to, you know, Bush, George W. Bush, obviously, because I think Senior was obviously in World War Two. But, uh, yeah, you know, like pilot. Yeah, exactly. And he got shot down or whatever. But like, yeah, Bush and Cheney and, and Trump. You know, and, you know, Reagan also, he got out of serving. Uh, but, you know, you've got all these people that, you know, get us into these wars and they're Republicans and they claim to love the troops, but they don't actually serve themselves. So that is one thing that we're always, you know, on the other side looking at, like, who's got that cred that can, you know, point them in the face. You know, I think uh, Buttigieg had a, you know, not during the debate, but I think this was before he was like, you know, I, I'm not scared of a man who was gearing up for the seventh season of The Apprentice while I was packing my bags for Afghanistan and stuff. And so, look, I don't have a problem standing up to somebody who was, you know, working on season seven, a celebrity apprentice when I was packing my bags for Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, it's not about him. Do you have a question? Do you think he should, should have served in Vietnam? Well, I, I have a pretty dim view of his decision to use his privileged status to fake a disability in order to avoid serving in Vietnam. You believe he faked a disability? Do you believe he has a disability? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> At least not that one. He, 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 um, 
no, I don't mean to. No, I don't, this is actually really important because I don't, I don't mean to, to trivialize disability, but I think that's exactly what he did. Uh, when, um, I mean, when you think about the way somebody can exploit the system, uh, and needless to say, the way he has treated and mocked disabled people is just one more example uh, of the, the many affronts to, to, to just basic decency. Uh, that this president has uh, has inflicted on this country, uh, uh, but manipulating uh, the ability to get a diagnosis. I mean, if you were conscientious objector, I'd admire that. But this is somebody who I think it's fairly obvious to most of us took advantage of the fact that he was the child of a multimillionaire in order to pretend to be disabled so that somebody could go to war in his place. And I know that that dredges up old wounds from a complicated time during a complicated war. Um, but I'm also old enough to remember when conservatives talked about character as something that mattered in the presidency. And so I think it deserves to be talked about. That's a great mm -hmm. line, but it's only a great line because the Republicans are such hypocrites about this. But it's like, I don't know, is military service necessarily something that gives you cachet to talk about foreign policy? I don't know. I mean, it's a job. It's a hard job. I'm glad people are doing it in, a, you know, in some way. But like, yeah, I don't know. Is that like a qualification? And should, would we accept that as a qualification, all things being equal from the other side? I don't think so. So I don't know. I mean, yes, it's like it is important, but I feel like it's only important because the other side has, you know, been so derelict of duty as, as you know, to use a military term. So, yeah, well, I, it's I mean, I think I mean, it, we can run a military veteran for president and what the Republicans will do is they'll try to swift vote him again like they did John Kerry. Right? right, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, remember when they wore those, like, uh, Band-Aids or whatever under their eye at the at the Republican convention to make fun of John Kerry because he didn't get injured enough for their taste or something? Like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It's not going to be the thing that gets us over the finish line necessarily. Mm -hmm. so. And I and I have a feeling, though, if you had if you had, you know, Buttigieg or gabbard running against trump and they were trying to run as the one of the troops and what they know what's best for the military i imagine one thing that trump could fall back on is to say well i'm pretty sure that if we polled the people in the armed services currently they would they would be voting republican more than they would be voting democrat mm -hmm. and he probably wouldn't be wrong about that so uh yeah i'll you know i don't know it's it's a messy situation i do think like people who have served in the military served in the wars they do have a very unique on the ground often not always again you know these things everybody who served yes we should be thankful for them and that what they've done but we can't you know we can't pretend that every single person who ever served in the military was right there on the front lines you know watching their buddies get blown up like there's a lot of jobs in the military that are not like that and yeah we should thank them all but being having been in the military at some point does not make you a better foreign policy expert than somebody who wasn't necessarily or necessarily uh, a great president either. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, look at Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, his administration was <laughs> a disaster and he was obviously a good general because he won the Civil War. But that doesn't mean you necessarily know. It's just like, you know, making being a business tycoon doesn't mean you're a good president, obviously. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. 
yeah, I think that they're, I think it would be interesting to talk to some veterans or whatever on the, on the, on the pod sometime. I think that's something we should work into our vocabulary on the pod. We can just talk about know. the pod as a very casual <laughs> thing that we're just like, we're on the pod. Sometimes other pods are off the pod. You you take that, you take that kind of talk back to talk, uh, pod save America. Chad. I don't want that. Uh, here. <laughs> okay. Hey Bob, I think it's shit or get off the pod time. Oh God. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear, uh, you know, uh, some veterans talk about this a little bit, just, you know, what do you, th- I mean, what is the, yeah, what kind of cachet do you think having served in the military, not just for you, but for anybody who's ever served in the military and uh, should carry? And does it matter whether you saw combat or whether you were kind of in the rear echelon somewhere, rear area, you know, does that, I mean, does that, should that affect how much credence we give to somebody's uh, voice on issues of of uh, war and peace and international relations and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, and at the end of the day, America is designed to have civilian control of the military. Mm. Um, and there's a reason for that. So, right. Um, so yeah, that's, and there's, there's a lot of things we could say probably about the Iran stuff, what's going on there about the, the report a few weeks ago that, um, the military is going ahead. The defense department is going ahead and doing some hacking inside of Russia and Iran, I believe without telling president Trump, because, because they don't fucking trust him because he'll, he'll go right back to Putin and talk about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the one hand, good. I think somebody should be doing something with the Russians there in that, in that case. But on the other hand, bad because it undermines the norm and the rule that the president is the commander in chief of the military. And you have to run things by him. If we create this this norm that you don't have to and you can do things behind his back because you don't think you know it's basically it's better to gain for it's easier to gain forgiveness than permission then we're really you know we're not setting america up for good things in the future mm-hmm. when we do have responsible presidents who are loyal to america and who need to be obeyed and listened to on military issues so yeah so yeah, anyways, that's that's the long story short about Tulsi Gabbard and Ryan there. So and then kind of the biggest, the last big question was the biggest geopolitical threat. What is the biggest geopolitical threat? Uh, John Delaney said China and nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons. Okay. Inslee said Donald Trump, which was a good applause line. And frankly, you know, if you're not considering <laughs> international things, it's probably true. Uh, Gabbard. Uh, we ask uh, voters from across the country to submit their questions to the candidates. Let me read one now. This comes from John in New York, who submitted this question. He asks, does the United States have a responsibility to protect in the case of genocide or crimes against humanity? Do we have a responsibility to intervene, to protect people threatened by their governments, even when atrocities do not affect American core interests? I'd like to direct that question to Congressman O'Rourke. John, I appreciate the the question. The answer is yes, but that action should always be undertaken with allies and partners and friends. When the United States presents a united front, we have a much better chance of achieving our foreign policy aims and preventing the kind of genocide to which you refer, the kind of genocide that we saw in Rwanda, the kind of genocide we want to stop going forward. But unfortunately, under this administration, 
President Trump has alienated our allies and our friends and our alliances. He's diminished our standing in the world, and he's made us weaker as a country, less able to confront challenges, whether it's Iran or North Korea or Vladimir Putin in Russia, who attacked and invaded our democracy in 2016, and who President Trump has offered another invitation to do the same. He's embraced strongmen and dictators at the expense of the great democracies. As president, I will make sure that we live our values in our foreign policy. I will ensure that we strengthen those alliances and partnerships and friendships and meet any challenge that we face together. That makes America stronger. What about the War Powers Act? What about the War Powers Act being a part of that equation? With deep respect to the congressman. Look, we've learned of painful lessons as Americans that we've gone to war without congressional authorization. And look, this is very personal for me. I know the cost of war. My dad served in the Pacific in World War II in the U.S. Army. Battle of Okinawa had half his leg blown off, and he came home with scars, both physical and emotional, and he did not recover. He spiraled downward, and he ultimately took his own life. And that battle didn't kill him, but that war did. And look, even in the humanitarian crisis, and I think we should be ready, Congressman, to intervene. God forbid there is a genocide, but not without congressional approval. Democrats and Republicans, both in the Congress, have not challenged presidents and have let them get away with running the military without the congressional approval. We learned a lesson in Vietnam we seem to have forgotten. And the decisions have to be made by the United States Congress. I want to pick, up, no, no, I pick up on this point, and I want to put this to Congressman Ryan. Today, the Taliban claimed responsibility for killing two American service members in Afghanistan. Uh, leaders as disparate as President Obama and President Trump have both said that they want to end U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But it isn't over for America. Why isn't it over? Why can't presidents of very different parties and very different temperaments get us out of there? And how could you? I appreciate that question. So I've, I've been in Congress 17 years, and 12 of those years I've sat on the Armed Services Committee, either the Defense Appropriations Committee or the Armed Services Committee. And the lesson that I've learned over the years is that you have to stay engaged in these situations. Nobody likes it. It's long. It's tedious. But right now we have, so I would say we must be engaged in this. We must have our State Department engaged. We must have our military engaged to the, to the extent they need to be. But the reality of it is this president doesn't even have people appointed in the State Department to deal with these things. Whether we're talking about Central America, whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about Afghanistan, we've got to be completely engaged. And here's why. Because these flare-ups distract us from the real problems in the country. If we're if getting... Uh, uh, drone shot down for $130 million because the president is distracted, that's $130 million that we could be spending in places like Youngstown, Ohio, or Flint, Michigan, or, re or, gonna, rebuilding, Congresswoman or Gabbard, rebuilding. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, actually, to is jump off what he what said. He will, described is engagement that what you as the will tell the parents of those two soldiers who were just killed in Afghanistan? Well, we just have to be engaged. As a soldier, I will tell you, that answer is unacceptable. We have to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. We are in a place in Afghanistan where we have lost so many lives. We've spent so much money, money that's coming out of every one of our pockets, money that should be going into communities here at home, meeting the needs of the people here at home. We are no better off in Afghanistan today than we were when this war began. This is why it's so important to have a president and commander in chief 
who knows the cost of war and who's ready to do the job on day one. I am ready to do that job when I walk into the Oval Office. Thank you very much. Listen, I'm going to go down the line. I'm going to go down the. I'm going to go down the line. I'm going to go down the line here. Well, you know what? You felt you felt like she was responding. You get 30 seconds. Go. Fair enough. Appreciate that. I hear what you're saying. I would just say I don't want to be. I don't want to be engaged. I wish we were spending all this money in places that I've represented that have been completely forgotten and we were rebuilding. But the reality of it is, if the United States isn't engaged, the Taliban will grow and they will have bigger, bolder terrorist acts. We have got to have some present there. As, the as, the as Taliban was Iraq. there long before we came in. They'll yeah, be and they there were, long yeah, before exactly. we leave. Well, we cannot they keep U.S. And troops they were deployed to Afghanistan thinking that we're going to somehow squash this Taliban I that has say, been there that every other country that's them. tried I didn't say squash failed. them. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have The didn't attack us on 9-11. Al-Qaeda did. Well, I understand. Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I understand. That's why I and so I many understand. other people joined the military to go I after al-Qaeda, not the Taliban. The Taliban, the Taliban was protecting those people who were plotting against us. All I'm saying is, if we want to go in to elections and we want to say that we got to withdraw from the world, that's what President Trump is saying. We okay. can't. I would love you know for who's us protecting to. protecting Al-Qaeda right now in Saudi down, Arabia. I want to go down the line here, finish up foreign policy. It's a simple question. What is, our, what is the biggest threat to the what is Who is the geopolitical threat to the United States? Just give me a one-word answer, Congressman Delaney. <clears throat> Could you repeat the question? Greatest geopolitical threat to the United States right now, Congressman Delaney. Well, the biggest uh, geopolitical challenge is China, but the okay. biggest geopolitical threat yes. remains nuclear weapons. Okay. Right? So those are, di you know, those I got are different you. questions. Totally get it. Go ahead, Governor Inslee. The biggest threat to the security of the United States is Donald Trump. And there's no question. Okay. Congresswoman Gabbard. The greatest... Greatest geopolitical threat. The greatest threat that we face is the fact that we are at a greater risk of nuclear okay. war today than ever before in history. Cong Cong uh, Senator Two Klobuchar. threats, economic threat, China, but our, our major threat right now is what's going on in the Mideast with Iran if we don't get okay. our Okay, try to keep it a one, or, or slimmer, slimmer than what we've been going here. One or two our, words. Our please. existential threat is climate change. We have to confront it before it's too late. Senator Warner. Yeah. Climate change. Yeah, Senator Booker. Nuclear proliferation and climate change. Secretary uh, Castro. Uh, China and climate change. Yeah, Congressman Ryan. China, without a question, they're wiping us around the world economically. Yeah. Uh, and Mr. Mayor. Russia, because they're trying to undermine our democracy, and they've been doing a pretty damn good job of it, and we need to stop them. All right. Well, thank you. This is, this is again, this is where I see the Russian getting through her a little bit, I think, right? She said the great... We are at the greatest risk of nuclear war today than ever before in history. That's a Kremlin line. That That's was what the Kremlin was saying about uh, Hillary Clinton. We're going to exactly. have to go if to nuclear elect, war. It's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, if you elect Hillary Clinton, we'll be at nuclear war because Russia won't have a choice in no time. Yeah. Exactly. We're at, really, Tulsi Grabber, we're at the greatest risk of nuclear war now more than, I don't know, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, really, in 2019, we're just we're seconds away from pressing the button on Russia or China. Or who who are we even going to nuke? Who's going to nuke us? Iran? No. This is yeah. That was another one of those issues where I think I'm seeing something there that I don't think a lot of people are seeing about Tulsi Gabbard. That was a that was a bad answer. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Klobuchar said the economy were against China. They're the greatest threat. Iran and the Middle East are our other biggest threat. Really? Iran? Iran's a bigger threat than Russia right now? Come on. Uh, Beto O'Rourke said climate change. Warren said climate change. Booker said nukes and climate change. He kind of wants to have it both ways there. Castro says China and climate change. And Ryan said China and Bill de Blasio said Russia, which I think Bill de Blasio was more right than a lot of people on that stage when he said that. So. I actually liked his answer, too. I remember that. Yeah. So that was I mean, that's basically my notes on the debate. That's 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 pretty much the two hours kind of summarized, yeah. I guess. Well, that was, yeah, that was a pretty good reading of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm just excited. You know, I mean, we'll talk more about this when we talk about the second night of debates. But I like I like having a lot of people up there scrapping it up. I wish this had happened in 2016, though. Man, imagine how much different things would be if we'd had 20 candidates on the Democratic side, you know, duking it out like this. That would have been so much yeah. better, like like so much more freeing. And it was so stifling last time. And honestly, that's probably, you know, credit to Bernie, of course, for everything he did. But like it's partially maybe why all the energy went to him, because there was he was the only one that was willing to stand up and say, no, maybe it's not Hillary Clinton's turn, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and there's no reason, for example, why Joe Biden should run this time that he shouldn't have ran last time. He should have ran last time if he was going to do this, because if you're a vice president, you get the juice off of coming off the last administration. Yeah. So why not just do it? You know, like and it's now it's like it's four years later. He's older. He's, you know, got all this competition now. He should have just done it then. It doesn't make any sense for him to do it this time and not last time. Well, so, to be fair, to be fair, his son died of cancer last time. And, yeah, guess, and to be but, fair, I mean, the his his demographic, the, the party establishment was kind of coalescing around Clinton and there would have been bad blood there i think uh between him and clinton i think and and their entire wings of the the establishment if he had and i i I don't know i think to be fair like i think the party that's not in power tends to have more candidates than the party that was or is or has been in power more recently you know because they've got more options to unseat the other side while the the establishment is more of an inevitability right in 2020 the republicans are probably going to run donald trump again unless you know something happens uh i think that's a that's a little bit different though because he's basically co-opted the party under his own name that's why you see you know the high levels of support from republicans is because to be a republican is to be a trump supporter there is no other way i feel like democrats are not in the same position i don't feel like there's that same cult of personality you know as much as the republicans tried to make it be one oh you know obama's a celebrity president blah 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 it's not the same it's not the same at all and like this is a you know cult-like atmosphere that the republicans have given themselves over to and i feel like that's a little bit i i I see your point uh but i don't think it's exactly the same i think there is a little bit more of a you know focused on the one man as opposed to the party so yeah, but but I, I I'm I guess I'm making the point more from a uh, from a I don't know what you say like a kind of a a turn based kind of like a I don't know procedural or kind of like I mean he 
Well, well he's running have, for re-election, though. That's, that's yeah, that's my point. He's running for re-election, and so you can't really. It's very difficult to change horses mid-race, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, Democrats would not do that either. And, True, and but 20, Obama's terms were up at last time. It wasn't that, well, a re-election. That's the point I'm making. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the point is, yeah, it's a little bit different because the term was coming to an end. The eight years were up. But I think it's it's still the same that the incumbent party has generally has a a little bit fewer ideas. I think it's much harder to run as a as a Democrat in 20, what, 2016, when Obama's eight years are just up because there's not too many lanes you can take. Right. Any any lane you take that's not the Obama lane basically is a repudiation of the last eight years of Democratic rule, you know, Mm -hmm. but when you're in the opposition party, you've got anybody can critique the past four to eight years for any number of reasons. And you're not really going against party orthodoxy. Party orthodoxy can be can be molded at that point for Mm -hmm. the for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But I just feel I just feel good that there's like a vigorous debate. I just didn't. I was just so stifling last time to watch the in retrospect, you know, and and knowing how it turned out, obviously, hindsight being 2020 and all, uh, you know, to to use a phrase. I know that was Bernie's thing after last time, but, um, you know, Mm -hmm. like like that's, you know, it would have been nice last time is all I'm saying to see a little bit more mixing it up and not so much inevitability. Um, like we've talked about, there wasn't even that much, you know, uh, sparks between Bernie and, and Hillary. Like he let her off the hook many times when he didn't have to. And, you know, I'm glad to see yeah. there's not an inevitable candidate. And then, you know, I don't think Joe Biden is a good candidate. I think he would lose. And I'm glad to see they're not just going with the idea that he's inevitable. And not that I need Kamala Harris or whoever else or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie to be the person, but it is nice to see that there's not one, you know, leader of the pack that we all have to make way for. And I I think that's a better system for going forward. So, yeah, I do think, yeah, I think the, the idea that it's somebody's turn. Yeah. That's got to, that's got to go on the ash ash heap of history. It's like four years later is a different world. You know, you can't be holding on to chips you cashed in last time or something. Mm -hmm. You can't. Yeah. So, uh, oh, there was one more. Uh, sorry, I, I went back to the front page of the paper. There's one last thing they were asked about, which was basically holding Trump accountable, whether that's, you know, impeachment or doing so. I think basically, you know, holding him accountable legally when they become president. Congressman O'Rourke, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report outlines multiple instances of potential criminal behavior by President Trump. House Speaker Pelosi has publicly and privately resisted any move toward impeachment in the House. If the House chooses not to impeach, as president, would you do anything to address the potential crimes that were outlined in Mr. Mueller's report? Yes, and I'll tell you why. How, by the way, if if the answer is yes. One of the most powerful pieces of art in the United States Capitol is the Trumbull painting of General George Washington resigning his commission to the Continental Congress at the height of his power, submitting to the rule of law and the will of people. That has withstood the test of time for the last 243 years. If we set another precedent now that a candidate who invited the participation of a foreign power, a president who sought to obstruct the investigation into the invasion of our democracy, if we allow him to get away with this with complete impunity, then we will have set a new standard, and that is that some people, because of the position of power and public trust that they hold, 
told are above the law. And we cannot allow that to stand. So we must begin impeachment now so that we have the facts and the truth and we follow them as far as they go and as high up as they reach and we save this democracy. And if we've not been able to do that in this year or the year that follows and under my administration, our Department of Justice will pursue these facts and ensure that there are, account there are consequences, there is accountability, mm -hmm. and there is justice. It's the only way that we save this country. Thank you, Congressman work. Because of the accountability issues that Congressman O'Rourke was just describing there and the real political um, landscape in which Nancy Pelosi is saying that impeachment will not be pursued in the House, it raises the prospect, and the Mueller report raises the prospect, that President Trump could be prosecuted for some of those potential crimes down the line. No U.S. president has ever been prosecuted for crimes after leaving office. Do you believe that President Trump could or should be the first? I guess there's always a first. <laughs> Should he be I don't first? think anyone's above the law. I don't think anyone is above the law, including a president. I support Speaker Pelosi's decisions that she's making in the, in the House of Representatives right now as Speaker. I think she knows more about the decision as to whether Im to impeach the president than any of the 2020 candidates combined. Conceded. So, but I do, think, I do think the no one's above the law, and this president, who is lawless, should not be above the law. But I will tell you, Rachel, the one thing when you're out doing as much campaigning as I've done, 400 events, all 99 counties in Iowa, this is not the number one issue the American people ask us about. It's not. They want to know what we're going to do for health care, how we're going to lower pharmaceutical prices, how we're going to build infrastructure, what we're going to do to create jobs in their communities. You know, last year in our country, 80% of the money for startup businesses went to 50 counties in this country. There's over 3,000 counties in this country. That's what they care about. They care about what's going on in the public schools. They care about what's going on with jobs in their communities, with their pay, with their health care, with infrastructure. These are the issues, these kind of kitchen table pocketbook issues are actually what most Americans care about. They, they never ask about the Congressman, thank you. Your time is up. They never ask about it. They want to know how we're going to solve these problems. Time, sir. Here's the thing. I still, Senator, I, we got to. We let the Republicans run our elections. We got to. And if we do not do something about Russian interference in the election and we let Mitch okay. McConnell stop all the backup paper Thank ballots, then we're not yep. going to get what. Um, he said O'Rourke said impeach now. And if, if we don't impeach him now, then my Department of Justice will pursue the issue with him. Uh, Delaney was incredibly frustrating. He said no one is above the law, but I approve of I support Nancy Pelosi and I don't think any. Any one of us on this stage knows more about how to handle this than Nancy Pelosi. But then he went back and said, but Trump is a lawless president. Nobody's above the law. Um, yeah. And then he said, but but everywhere I go, you know, voters don't care about impeachment. And then he said, there are 3,000, there are over 3,000 counties in this country, which is like, okay. Yeah, Delaney, you memorized a factoid and you wanted to, re you wanted to recite it and... <laughs> This seems like your last chance, and it was, so congratulations for that, I guess. But, like, what a, what a mealy-mouthed person, you know? Oh, nobody's above the law. Donald Trump is lawless. Uh, we, we can't impeach because Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to, and I support her. I mean, what – what that you don't have a coherent thought there, man. Mm -mm. Why are you on the stage, you know? Why are you on the stage? Yeah. I don't expect him to be on the next stage. I'll be very surprised if he is. 
well, they may actually bring him back. I'm not sure what the thresholds are. Um, I was just looking at that. That I know they have to meet a fundraising and a polling thing, yeah, or this one time or the it was other. Like one or the other. This time it was one or the other. I think next time it'll uh, at least be more stringent if it's not one or the other. Gotcha. Yeah, I know that like 14 of them, I guess, had, and six of them hadn't. So yeah, I I, I hope it's a little more whittled down because there are a few people. We could cut very easily, you know, the Marianne Williamsons, your your John Delaney's. So we can we can effectively hey, say, hey, slow down, girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get to that on night two. Oh yeah, night two, absolutely. night two. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to talk about night two because I think there's a lot to a lot to say there as well. But yeah, I, I yeah. am actually interested once we whittle it down a little bit more to the just getting them all on one stage because I think that's when we'll really see some sparks flying here. So. Yeah. Um, any, I guess, like any kind of final thoughts about, I mean, okay, like, I guess final thoughts about who, who does not belong on the stage next time, who disqualified themselves, who should probably just bow out, who's only in it for their ego, who is the winner of the debate. And I want to be careful with that, because I, I feel like a lot of the coverage, even from a lot of places that I respect, they kind of already knew who the winner was in their right. mind before the debate happened. And they're like, oh, oh. Clearly, clearly Elizabeth Warren owned it again. Right. Oh, she right. won everything. It's like I don't think it's that clear. I don't think Elizabeth Warren kept her head down. The I think whole she. Time. And you could say, well, that's anything, what she's supposed just, to do. Yeah, she just remained neutral in my book. I don't think it hurt her or helped her. Honestly, I think she kind of just stayed where she was. Um, and you know, I I want to get away from that too because I'm as guilty of that as anyone. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. when I was writing about the last, uh, you know, and I was definitely not picturing it turning out how it did because so i think it's played into it but like i definitely when i was writing my columns as i wrote about every single primary republican general democrat you know the whole thing it was like ended up being over two dozen debates i wrote columns about and i had a little wow. section yeah i read a little section at the end of every one who won and who lost like it mattered like mm -hmm. it didn't matter it's it's arbitrary it doesn't mean anything there's people that have good moments and bad moments but like in the end, you know, you can't break it down like that. It doesn't matter. Like it's like you, and it, it's arbitrary to say who won and lost. Like, what does that even mean? It's not a sporting competition. Like you may say that somebody lost this one point or this mm. moment, but I don't know that you can say somebody lost the whole debate. Having said that, if you, I had to say somebody who did lose, I think Beto lost big time. I think yeah. he definitely dropped in a lot of people's estimation. And I think a lot of people on the stage for some reason, just had it out for him. I, I understood from Julian Castro's, uh, you know, uh, point of view why he felt like he had to take him on. Um, but I felt like it was almost just overkill when Cory Booker and Bill de Blasio were jumping in the, off the ropes onto him. Like, I'm like, okay, the guy's down. <laughs> let's, let's get yeah. off him. Um, well, but yeah, I, I think if, he, if I had to say winners and he losers, brings it out in him. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this tall drink of water thinks he can saunter in here? Take my steam away from me. So. <laughs> Maybe he was born this way. I know, right? Um, but he was born for this. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. If I had to say somebody who rose, I, I don't want to say winner. I'll say rose in people's consciousness or estimation. I think Julian Castro had a really good night. You know, overall, like I think he really he made a lot of salient points, and he definitely brought the you know of the people who spoke Spanish. I definitely thought he had the most authenticity, obviously, with it. Um, so, you know, I think he went on that and, you know, just as far as standing out in a crowded field, I think he acquitted himself well. Um, 
you know, I thought de Blasio did okay for a guy at the end of the stage. You know, he might move on to the next round, uh, you know, just based off of a stronger performance on that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Look, I, I think Castro did good on a couple issues. Um, I think that the trans women getting abortions thing was <laughs> an overlooked gym that is probably should be somewhat disqualifying. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll find that audio. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, check it out. Make sure it says what I think it says, because I wrote it down. I think I got it right. But I know it, it I, seems... I, when you said that, I, I kind of it's something in my mind sparked and I sort of remember at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I actually kind of disagree with you. I do think we can declare winners and losers, but I just I want everybody to be very careful that they're not just saying, you know, like for us, like, for example, oh, I, I support Bernie. So I think Bernie won the debate. I think it's very yeah. clear that he won the debate. But it's obvious that I want to say that because I support him. Right. Um, I don't know. I think we have to be honest about how people do. And frankly, from what I've watched the second night debate, Bernie's not. He's not doing anything special. He's doing what Ber- he's doing what Bernie does, which is good enough. And you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, it's. I mean, but I'm not going to go out there and necessarily. I'll watch the whole thing, and if I think he wins, it, I'll say that. But I'm not going to go out there and watch it and think, yeah, he did kind of lackluster. But I just want him to win, so I'm going to say he won the debate. Yeah, I, he- I just feel like there's a lot of people saying Warren won the night. And, you know, Bernie won the second night, and I don't know that that's true. I mean, from what I've seen so far, I would have to say that uh, Kamala Harris seems to have dominated the second night at several moments there. And she just she just kneecapped Joe Biden. I I would not be surprised to see Joe Biden's numbers start falling here, especially after that. Well, I know she had a big fundraising surge after that debate for, for good reason. But I yeah. also like like she, you know, we're getting into the second night and I don't want it to do that too much. But I, That's I think what that she whole... said. <laughs> yeah. Edit. Edit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like the winner and loser thing, while I do agree with you that, yeah, we could probably say who did better and worse and who had a good night and who had a bad night. I do think that whole mentality feeds into them with these preloaded lines. Uh, that they come with, uh, like Kamala Harris had that line about they want to see, you know, people want to see food on their table. The they don't want to see a food, see fight. food now, fight. People in the uh, audience uh, were like, yeah, and I'm like, I slapped my that, forehead when I heard that. I was like, such a clunker. On. You know, like, this is one of those bullshit lines. You know, she practiced and practiced and practiced and was just uh, waiting for the moment to deploy it. And then she did. And she felt good about herself and she yeah. shouldn't have that. Yeah, she killed Biden in that debate. But that was kind of a line where I was like, Come on. Yeah. Are we st- what what era is this? Exactly. I wouldn't be interested. And I heard a lot of comments online saying this, and I think it's not a bad idea. I think they should get rid of the audience. I don't see any reason for it. And people play to the audience and can't hear what people are saying sometimes. And people shout over each other and it gets rewarded. So I don't know, like maybe doing it more of a vacuum would actually help. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't know. I think like the audience, um, you know, like we, we don't really have town halls. Like I think t- if we have a town hall and they call it a town hall, I think that the town hall should be totally unmoderated. I, th- I mean, it should have moderators, but they should let the people come up and ask the questions. But the questions should not be pre-vetted. Mm-hmm. And I know that that opens up some craziness potentially, but that is a way that you're going to get, you know, 
you genuine moments that way too. I mean, exactly. even if it's a stupid question, it's like people will have to get out of their script at least. Yeah. So. It's, it's, it, it's, it's introducing more, a more natural thing. It's introducing more, um, yeah. Unpredictability. People have to think on their feet. You don't have audience members trying to pre-select their question to be something that sounds intellectual, like what a news anchor might ask if they were asking the question instead. Mm. It's so I think this, the, the 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 town hall format that America has lapsed into recently has been very disappointing. But I don't know. But then, Charlie, we, we, we wouldn't have Ken Bone then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who he finally voted for. But probably Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so uh, as as far as who I think like made themselves who did well, I think De Blasio did seems to do a, he, to have beat expectations and you know I, he's not somebody I'm aware of I don't see him on the TV very often because I'm not in New York and stuff so it raised his profile in my estimation I guess Tim Ryan I honestly had no idea who this guy was before the thing happened I thought he did okay I mean I think he's probably just about done because Tulsi Gabbard probably killed him even though she shouldn't have I mean like even though I don't think it was justified that she got so much credit for her answer there that she did yeah um Julian Castro, I think that the, the trans abortion comment may have been a mistake, but I think like he sounded good on immigration. I think like I, as far as I can tell, he's one of these people who's polling around one percent or something. And I think his numbers are probably going to go up after that a little bit. They could double. <laughs> yeah. Cory Booker. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Kamala Harris is eating his lunch and yeah. she and Biden as far as in the mainstream. So I don't think he did particularly badly. I think the Spanish stuff that he and he and O'Rourke got into was a little bit annoying. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, yeah, I guess she kept her head low and you can make the argument that that's all she needed to do because she doesn't need to do get into a fight where she loses the fight and then that becomes the narrative. So mm-hmm. I guess when you're the front runner, you do want to kind of play it safe. But so, yeah, she should obviously stay in the thing, but um, I don't. I wouldn't say she necessarily won the whole thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. But Beto O'Rourke, I think this I, – I will be very satisfied as, if this is the last event we see him as a candidate for. I don't think it will be, but I do think he's – he. To, I think that was the last chance. Flicker of hope for him, I think, kind of went out after that. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a rough night. Yeah. Yeah, Amy Klobuchar did okay on some points. Um I'm not excited about her. Uh, she's done some weird things in the past. Um, Eating salad with a comb. With a comb. Yeah, I yeah. can't get over that. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather vote for Trump. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I would vote for, for Trump, obviously. But, like, yeah, that's it's, 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 it's disgraceful. Um, yeah, Tulsi Gabbard needs to be gone. I, you know, it's not a popular thing to say on the left wing. You know, there's some people who are freakishly passionate about her for some reason. I don't get it at yeah, what all. Yeah, what is that about? I don't get She's still, like, one of these people that's so transparently flawed to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt the same way about Trump. I was like, why is anyone fall for this? Like, I, I don't see, even the people that would agree with you, like, can't they see, like, this for the canard it is, like, just on its face? It's not even, it doesn't even, like, pass the smell test, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I, th- I think she needs to be gone. And, you know, she did okay for what she had to do. I guess she answered the questions reasonably well, but 
the fact that she dinged the other guy for confusing the Taliban and or or even conflating the Taliban and the Al Qaeda when she conflates the Taliban with all Afghanistan's ever in the history of Afghanistan. Right. I mean, you get you, you come out to at least nothing. You, you you come out to no gain with me or you even go down a little bit in my estimation for that answer. Mm-hmm. The thing about close to nuclear war, like we said, that's a Russian talking point. She needs to be gone. She probably needs to be investigated. There's something going on there. Yeah. Jay Inslee, he was like, I think he was the one I heard the least from. He's not wrong. I mean, he may be right. It's it's kind of like, you know, Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones kind of jumped the shark in season eight or whatever there. But like, he's the one who's screaming, yeah, the, the fucking White Walkers are coming and we're still fighting over the throne here with yeah. the, uh, he, he's probably right. I don't think he's going to be president, though. No, he's probably going to be like head of the EPA or something. But as he should be, you know, and he's one of these people that kind of like Andrew Yang has the one big issue that they're running on. And I don't Mm -hmm. really think they're going to be the one that's going to be president. But I want them at these debates to get more time because I feel like their issues are so important that I hope even if their candidacy, you know, fiddle fizzles out, which I'm sure it will for both of them. I, I mm-hmm. hope their issue continues on. And I think it's ridiculous that the Democrats won't have a climate change themed debate. Like, why not? Like, I know, know that uh, whoever the DNC chair is now is like poo poo this idea. But like, you yeah, need to have yeah. you, you need to make this front and center. This is a big issue. Yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. I, I can't. Tom Perez. Name, right? Tom Perez. Tom Perez. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that that weak goatee heaven, motherfucker. <laughs> I think that's like, what it says on the lower Chiron, lower third Chiron on CNN for him. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, but yeah, I, I just know his his goatee game is real weak. Not yeah. like me. Not so. winning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think a climate change. I think Jay Hensley is a little bit selfish to want that just because that's his that his that's his pet issue, and he knows he can run run circles around everybody else like and it's kind of like um you know it'd be kind of like if if you know it'd be kind of like if aside from the fact that it's the one issue that can probably kill all life on this earth basically or whatever right i mean like eventually but it'd be kind of like if elizabeth warren or bernie sanders said i want to have a debate just about student debt it's like of course you do because that's your pet issue and you know that you've got a better policy on that one issue than anybody else is going to have right so it's Mm -hmm. like it's it's very transparent if you ask for that. A week and a half ago, uh, Governor Inslee called and said, I would like to have a, a climate-only debate. And I said what I just said to you, Governor, we are going to have a more robust and granular discussion of climate in the course of our debate season than Ooh. ever before. Yes. But to change the rules because the candidate who has made this his signature issue wants us now, you know, four months later. And by the way, when we announced our rules, nobody complained. Everybody said, I get the rules of engagement. And I understand why Governor Inslee wants to do this, and I understand the importance of the issue. But to change the rules now and say, we're gonna do it differently after we had all agreed on the terms of engagement, then I need to go back to a number of organizations who said, I want a debate on my issue and my issue only. And we don't have enough debates to do that. And so that's my complaint. But 
Yeah, I don't think it would be the end of the world if they did do that. So what if they, if they did know, have that debate? So what if they had that? They could have, you know, make each debate. How many debates is there going to be? We're still how far away from the Iowa caucuses? We got time. Why not just make every debate about one big issue? You know, we can do this. You know, it's not that mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> so maybe yeah. we should have a student debt debate. That would be fine. Or a healthcare yeah. debate or, you know, uh packing the supreme court debate i'm fine we got we got time here we got we got a year and a half people <laughs> yeah in a way i think it would be a good thing because you know we, we basically get 30 to 45 seconds of each person talking about each issue maybe yeah. a little bit more if they start yelling at each other or something right but they in this quote-unquote debate format that you know it's not really debate and stuff and and that's not a knock against the democrats because the republican debates are the same thing basically but it's basically a soundbite-a-thon, right? Mm-hmm. They don't really have to drill down on the issues and demonstrate real knowledge on the issues. They just have to demonstrate knowledge for 30 seconds, which anybody can demonstrate knowledge on just about anything for 30 seconds. Well, and also it gives them the excuse to jump off of whatever question was asked to address whatever they want to be asked because you're mm-hmm. like, well – you know, you got to give them that because they don't maybe have time to, you know, get into everything they'd like to. So, you know, if they ignore this question and then jump off onto something else and well, you know, got to get your yeah. you know, two cents in. But it's like, no, if it's if the whole debate is about one thing, you've got to dig deep and you got to know your stuff and you got to stick on topic. You can't just be like, I want to address the last thing that was said. My name was invoked on that last issue that we're not talking about anymore. And I want to throw my you know, it's like, no, sorry, you just yeah. got to stick to this one issue and tell us what you actually think and actually go deep you know so yeah yeah and and like i think yeah i think there were several places where the um yeah where people jumped from issue to issue and sometimes like and quite often i think the moderators just let the let the issue migrate like they started out talking about one thing and then they started ended up talking about something else like uh you know like the question was about a, a response to genocide somewhere in the world by the american military and Suddenly it becomes kind of a relitigation of the Afghanistan war or, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, that happened. About- yeah, that happened on the second night, too. Not to again, not to get into that, but that is what ha- remember when the big, you know, kerfuffle with uh, Biden and, and Harris came that was jumping off of people beating up on Buttigieg for this police shooting that he's dealing with. And she mm-hmm. like, obviously, again, that was something she had preloaded. I'm going to go after Joe Biden here. Here's my big on chance. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, but it's like, that's not what we, that's not what we were talking about. And then she was like, I'm the only person of color on the stage. So I think I should get to speak and pummel Joe Biden. Can I have my time? And it's like, we're talking, we're yeah. talking about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the and you know the the guns the guns debate, you know, turning into, you know, community relations between African Americans and police officers. That's an important issue, very important. But mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about the Second Amendment. I don't know that that. I don't know. You can make an argument that the Second Amendment, from its original, you know, institution, was about keeping slaves down by the owners or whatever. I there's a there's a lot of history there and stuff or whatever that you know, but. That's not the way they brought it into that that thing. Um, you know, the talk about healthcare, woman's right to choose, abortion, and stuff like that. Well, well, okay, it, it shifted to women's rights to choose somewhere after it was supposed to be about abolishing private health insurance and insurance companies and regulating big pharma and stuff like that. And then it shifted somewhere about halfway down to a woman's right to choose. And then, of course, Castro went all the way in on the trans community's right to choose, and it's like. Yeah, we we've totally abandoned. You know, we're we're not in the same. 
area where we started. Um, <laughs> well, hey, so. there could be uh, a, a man. Cause I think there was a, a man who was pre- who transitioned to being a woman, but or no, it was a woman that transitioned to being a man, but she got pregnant or he got pregnant. Yeah, I, I forget this. Oh. This, there's, okay, but, there's like one or but, two cases of this. So. But that's not a trans woman, then, though, Bob. That's <laughs> know, a trans man, right? I know. So, uh, I need to cut know. this part out. I'm, I'm going to step all over myself here. So. No, it, it's just further demonstrating that Castro, if the, if that's what he was trying to say, then he, he, screwed he it apparently up, yeah. misgendered right. somebody or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I don't, you know. Yeah, no what, doubt, yeah. This, I mean, the, I don't know, whatever. We... <laughs> The, the fight over gender pronouns and stuff happened a couple of years ago. I thought it was all resolved. It was confusing for a while, but I thought we were all on the same page. But I don't know. I think it's a confusing issue. And if that's why, if that was the point at which he became confused, I don't know. It's confusing. I don't know exactly what he was trying to say. And if he was saying what I think he was trying to say, I, it's just confusing, right? So, anyways, John Delaney also needs to be cut, I think, especially, I mean, of, of all the people on the stage, aside from, like, Tulsi Gabbard, who I think could do real harm to the Democratic Party, I think he needs to be, go just for being, like, a whiny little kind of attention hog. I, You know, nobody knows why he's there. He doesn't really, yeah. Anyways, that's 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 it. That's That's it for me, so... Anyways, I, I that's all I've pretty much got on this the first debate. But yeah, I think we've we've been through this thing and back and forth every which way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm I'm excited. I, I want I want more of these debates. I think it's good for the party, and I think it's good to, you know, the more people talk, sometimes the more they expose their ignorance on these issues, and so <laughs> that's what I, I, think... I worry about with this podcast, Bob. <laughs> 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 well, you're in deep trouble then, because you're on, you're on here more than anybody. So. Oh, jeez, I'm really I'm really screwing up my future presidential run, aren't I? I know, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. Well, over the next couple of days, I'm going to try to do the same thing we did with this with the second debate, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, hopefully, maybe by next Friday or something, we could record that one if possible. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to do it sooner, but I I find that if I stay up too late doing these things, sometimes like. I'm late for my class the next day or something and I just can't do it. So I gotta, we got to time it. So it works. So, yeah. Well, we got 4th of July coming up, so I'll have some time to, to really dig in here. So, but all right. Yeah. 4th of July is not a holiday in Korea, believe it or not. What? (laughs) America's birthday isn't celebrated across the world. They just don't love freedom like we do, I guess. No. Right. Yeah, and we got Trump over there stepping into North Korea as we speak almost, so. Yeah, yeah, making history in a way, (laughs) for better or worse, so. Yeah, did you see that his uh, new press person got beat up by the North Koreans? What? Yeah. No, I haven't heard about this. (laughs) Apparently, I I haven't gotten all the full details, but whoever's taken over for Sarah Huckabee Sanders got roughed up by a North Korean uh, security or whatever while the meeting was happening or something. <laughs> I shouldn't oh, laugh, boy. but it's like, yeah, what do you think? You're meeting with a murderous dictator and, oh, gee, these aren't the nicest people in the world. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, 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 hey,
That's such a power play. I know. <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump, your country's bigger and stronger than me and Kuwait is off the map. But when you people come to my country, we manhandle your people. <laughs> that, that's exactly. a ball of move. Yeah, exactly. So, and the people are so shocked. Like, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump, you're on our territory here now. We could auto warm beer your ass. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Well, no, he even said like, oh, this is, you know, they, they've returned our hostages. This is this is part of the free unfreezing of uh, of relations. It's like, yeah, one of them was brain dead. But other than that, it's going great. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, hopefully this time that he meets with, you know, uh, Kim Jong Un, uh, Kim Jong-un doesn't have to uh, murder half of his uh, negotiating team on the yeah, tarmac of the right? airport, you know. So, again, you know, it's all fun games. Yes, he's making history. Oh, will they, won't they? But there are real consequences. And, you know, I don't have too much sympathy for people in the higher up positions within the North Korean uh, government, I guess we could say. But, uh, you know... Probably the people who got killed when Trump threw his little hissy fit because, you know, the Mueller report was coming out or whatever, whatever was going on last time. People were testifying in in Congress or something against him. Uh, You know, I forget who it was. Was it Cohen was squealing or something at that point? And so he got so upset that he Mm -hmm. flew out of the the negotiations where Kim Jong-un had ridden a train all the way down through China, all the way to Vietnam to be there because he won't fly. He was doing it for several days and then Trump stands him up at the at the altar and then he gets pissed off and goes back and kills some of his people. I mean, there are real consequences for Donald Trump fucking around with this negotiation like he is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So things are Anyways. going great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another year and a half, Bob. Another year and a half. I know. We just got to keep Western style uh, liberalism, or as Trump thinks it is, uh, <laughs> San Francisco Democrats. He doesn't understand what liberalism means. His Thank comments you, to the Financial Times right before arriving here was that Western style liberalism is obsolete. I know you, you probably haven't read the interview. Well, again, he may feel true? that way. I mean, he sees what's going on, and uh, I guess if you look at what's happening in Los Angeles, where uh, it's so sad to look and what's happening in San Francisco and a couple of other cities which are run uh, by a, an extraordinary uh, group of liberal people. I don't know what they're thinking, but he does see things that are happening in the United States that uh, would would probably preclude him from saying how wonderful it is. At the same time, he congratulated me as every other Every other leader of every country did for what we've done economically because we probably have the strongest economy we've ever had. But whatever, yeah, just got to survive for another 18 months here and hope he leaves office if he loses. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I can weather it out in South Korea unless. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're, I'm worried, you're I'm worried an about expat, you people so. back there. I know. Yeah. We're holding down the fort here in Red, Red State America. So. Yeah. Well, Bob, I'm in Red State America in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I think like one of us is doing more work. So. <laughs> I know me and it's it's all mental work too, know, mental right? labor. Really doing the Yaman's work there. So. <laughs> it's a heavy burden to bear, Bob, but I I hardly complain. I know, right? <laughs> cool. Well, I'll be back with you in a few days to uh, discuss night two. So definitely, definitely, we'll get get to work on that. Anyways, Bob, yeah, good watching the debate with you again. It's 
fun to do this. I feel like the ones we did several years ago were pretty good episodes and pretty, pretty standout episodes. So I'm yeah. excited to do debates again. It's sure. a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but it's, uh, yeah, it's good. Sure. All right. My time's up as Joe Biden says. So. Uh, all right. We'll leave it there. We, we got to leave it there. We have a commercial break. Absolutely. So, all right. Have a good night. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you too, Bob. Have a good day. Later.